Hey everybody, welcome to Stress for Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Little, uh, and uh, it's Friday night again. We just seem to have to keep pushing back. I had a chance to talk with a major, major uh, internet guy last night, um, and uh, and I couldn't make it, but uh, I'm here tonight, so um, here we are, and I've got a, a bunch of good stuff. Uh, I'm getting orders here already in caps. Uh, explain yourself. You said to wait to post questions to team. I did not. I did not post it. Nope, I did not. I was running around all day today. I'm assuming somebody's going to figure this out. Um, in any event, uh, here we are. So, um, yes, my many failures on public display. That's what this, that's what this whole operation is all about. Uh, in any event, I've been running around like crazy person, and, uh, and I do have some interesting things uh, to um, to show. So, um, as I've said before, uh, the um, the animation stuff is the first chapter is finished. And the problem with the first chapter is there's only one political moment in it. It's at the very end. We don't have our helmets off, and so I've been working very hard on on showing kind of temporary renderings of, of some of the villains that we're going to meet as a way of kind of explaining what this thing's all about. So I, I loaded a bunch of them up, and it's going to be a second for me to get to them all. So uh, I'm going to bring in the microphone, and then I'll kind of show them to you one by one. Again, these are, there's something I need to add as well. So all of the facial capture stuff and the, and the motion capture, I sent it out to be cleaned up. It's a fairly complex thing to clean these things up. Yeah, Jeremy has seen the, um, the the finished first chapter. He seemed to like it. Um, so I'm waiting for this motion capture to come back. I sent it out to four people, and um, and it was just getting delayed and delayed, and one person just couldn't do it. Another person just did junk, and I'm sitting there going, my God, I can't just sit here. So what I decided to do was, to get as far ahead as possible, I decided to lay out each one of these levels and animate the the... the the enemy, the, the the bad guys coming out of the dark. So I was able to do that for, I don't know, seven or eight of them, something like that. So um, that's what we're going to see. But there's something actually to see first here. So let me go to uh, this magic thing. Give me one second to bring the mic into this, and then we can take them one by one. Hey, hey, can we hear me? I think that's probably got it. Okay, um, so um, I want to double check that. Just double check. Yes, that's the right mic. All right, so uh, here we go. So we're going to go back and forth, but here I am, still here. And uh, and here's where we're going to bring up some, uh, some of the animation stuff. So um, let me see if I can figure out the, the best way to do this. Uh, here's the thing I showed first. This is, this is what all of the ones that you're going to see. You know what? I'm going to back up and do one other thing first here. Hang on a second. Um, okay, so here we go. So um, when I showed you guys the last uh, test renderings of the CG version of me and Zoe, I thought Zoe looked great. I thought, I thought we really, really got him. I thought it looked more like Zoe than Zoe did. But I wasn't really happy with, uh, with the 3D representation I did of myself. Uh, so I spent some time working on that. So first thing I'm going to show you here is um, is five talking heads. The one on the left is the one that you saw last time. The one on the right is the one that we're going to be going with. 
and uh, and in between you'll see the iterations that that I used in order to get to the final version. It's just kind of you know, I don't know, kind of. Uh, I, I think it was interesting. So first thing is the um, is the steps of the old old bill on the left, new bill on the right. Here it comes. Uh, kind of creepy, I know, but um, I don't know. I can see uh, I can see a major improvement on that. So I basically started with the one that I had on the left, which I done kind of fast. And then, and then I iterated to the second one, iterated to the third one, iterated to the fourth one, and then finally got to the, uh, to the fifth one. And I think the one on the far right is actually pretty close. I think it's as close as we're going to get anyway, put it, put it uh, frankly. So I basically just took the same facial motion capture thing and, um, and applied it to all the same heads. And uh, I had different hairstyles and other things, but it looks like we're going to stay with the Viking hairstyle. So... Uh, so that's uh, basically that. Now, uh, I can show you what uh, what the finished product will look like on the um, on the uh, test platform. So here's a picture of the cathedral door. Make sure I get this right. Okay, so here's what uh, this is with the lighting all the way up. So this is what the um, this is what you'll see when when you when I'm selling the idea that first they go to the door of the dungeon and and so I thought I grabbed all these guys. Damn it! Anyway, I'll run this a second time. So that's finished lighting. I think that looks really really good. Um, do it one more time there. I guess I have to do this. Run again. There you go. The way that torchlight lights up the uh, proscenium when it when it gets closer is, I just think that's really cool. And then when they get to the door, um, of course they have to read that piece of parchment on there. Uh, and uh, this is what the parchment says. I really am really ashamed that this didn't work. I must be wearing a visor in order to enter this dungeon. And then uh, below that it says, by order of Dr. Faustus, uh, Chief Apocathery and Steward of the Realm. Uh, so I guess I'm gonna have to draw all these things out. That's kind of a drag. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think we're down to, okay, here we go. Uh, so, uh, I've showed this before, but um, this is what all of these sequences that I'm about to show you will look like when they're finished. They'll they'll all look like this. This is the only one I was able to get done. Um, they'll have the they'll have the bad guys walking out of the dark, and uh, and then there'll be a little kind of a confrontation with um, with uh, this. Yeah, the, the the signature wasn't shown. I, I do a bigger close up on the other shot of the signature. You can't see it. I purposely hit it. But this is um, so. This is what the ones that I'm about to show you will look like. But all I've got are the ones to show you are the are that first shot of them walking out of the dark. But it'll give you a good idea of what the villains are and look like. So you can see that once you get 
once you get them out on stage, you can do some really cool things with them. I think this I think this fight animation is amazing. Actually, I think it's very good. And um, Aesop says we should remove the visors and laugh as you enter. We not only remove the visors, we throw them at the sign. And Zo says, uh, "Here be thy answer, thou tyrant." And I say, and mine beside it, go tune thy lute, Faustus, thou mewling onion-eyed pigeon egg. Uh, so can't beat that. <laughs> great, that's a great line. Uh, Eve eighty-five says, "Don't forget, Bill, that knights can only move in the shape of an L on a chessboard." That's very clever. Okay, so now you get the idea. So here come some of the bad guys. I'll try to do them in order of increasing coolness. Uh, let's start off with uh, these are all the people that we see inside the Democratic Party headquarters dungeon. We know it's the Democratic Party headquarters. So here we go. Let's start with the. Um, with the willfully blind. Purposely rendered these guys in slow motion. I just think they're creepy. And um, and we will, they'll just basically walk past us. Oh, there's two I forgot to bring, I think, and that really makes me angry. But in any event, uh, you get to see most of it. Um, so that's uh, the willfully blind. Uh, another uh, crowd that you have to be careful out there is uh, in the democratic stronghold is, um, of course, the perpetually enraged. Another uh, gang you, you probably want to be careful uh, of when you're out there. This is this is the only one that my character recognizes right off the bat. Uh, one of the problems, of course, is is that the is that the world of the Democrats is filled with these creatures, uh, which are snitches. I think I'll just run that one one more time. To restart it. Nope, not you. Oh, I can do this. Yeah, those are the snitches. I like them. I think they're very cool. Um, okay, let's see what else we got. Uh, we have, I showed you the perpetually enraged, the willfully blind, the snitches. Uh, oh, this is fun. Uh, these are academics. Uh, these would be uh, college professors. Uh, purveyors of lies to children, I think is the one. And they'll say something appropriate, like, you know, walk, walk. It's fairly horrifying. Um, also, uh, I have a great line there from, actually from Shakespeare, thou clay brain guts, thou, 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 forget what the rest of it is, thou art marked only for hot, hot vengeance and the rod of heaven. Great line. So those are the, uh, the take on the academics. Um, here comes uh, a fun one. Uh, this is the first thing they encounter actually once they get past the door. Uh, this is the um, this is the uh, it, the attack of the feral Ocasios. There they are. Racist. That's different. 
Racist! Racist! So uh, those are the feral Acagios, uh, and they are not the smartest creatures in the world. They actually just walk through fire, and I'll catch fire, and then just jump off a bridge by accident. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's fairly uh, horrific. Let's see what we got here. Um, only a couple left. Uh, maybe only one left. Let me see. I miss... I think I've just got the one left. Um, okay, so um, we Zoe and I both have... Uh, like boss level guys um and uh and his is a is a race baiter which i've rendered i just didn't bring it i forgot it and i also didn't bring um the the tech guys who are like wraiths that fly around um but i do have uh the oath breakers thing i think is this the right one let's find out yes now this one was interesting um because this is my this is my enemy boss level. And I originally thought, okay, what I want to do, I actually wanted to say, by the way, Loyola said you want to date me. I almost put that in there. I really, and, and I might still, thou wishes to lie with me. I, I, I do not. No, everyone wishes to lie with me. I have somehow managed to avoid that temptation. Um, so here's, uh, here's the, um, here's the, uh, the um, Oathbreaker. This is my personal thing. And originally, I had like a bunch of models for Dark Knights. I had guys with, you know, all this kind of Baroque armor with skulls on it. And then I had guys who were just in black armor and I had these real dark looking knights. And then I realized, no, actually, uh, since these guys are Oathbreakers, he's got to look like, um, he's, whoops, he's got to look like the, um, like the palace guard. And and when I first see this guy, I, I think he's a friend. It's my God, look, it's 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 um Commodus or Commodus, maybe. Commodus, uh, he 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 was the head of the palace guards. He's a traitor and he's and he's a, a, a tool of oppression. No No Yes. Uh, and then um, this one is just very quick, just threw this together to show you. As he's approaching, I, I walk forward thinking he's a friend. But as he's approaching, uh, we get to see uh, this uh, different side of him. Oh, that's not it. Sorry, hang on. Here it is. Yeah. I'll run that again because that goes by real fast. Uh, it's strange why that just doesn't seem to work like that. All right, one more time. I know this is extremely awkward, but it, just, it is what it is. Where is it? Where, where do my oathbreakers go? Uh, anyway, I don't know where they went. It's uh, it's a mystery. In any event, that uh, that giant goat rodeo um, was uh, was um, basically uh, the, 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 the guts. But give me one second. It's a little warm in here. Sorry, probably too late. So, um, yeah, I've got these wraiths that represent the tech giants, and then I've got um, Zoe's boss uh, level adversary is a race baiter, which is this gigantic creature on, a, on like a snake's body. And so we get a chance to, um, to you know, to use all the dialogue and uh, the stuff about the, um, about the, uh, the Oathbreaker is fantastic because 
a lot of times I just use the Shakespeare insult generator, but for the things like the Oathbreaker, I could lift like entire paragraphs out of, um, you know, Macbeth or, or got a lot of stuff out of uh, Henry the uh, Henry the IV, a lot of stuff from Falstaff. But for the Oathbreakers, he says something like, um, you know, thou art in the lowest rank of manhood. I throw thy name against the bruising stones. Um, Draw thy weapon, my naked tool is out. It's awesome. It's great. So anyway, uh, this is an advanced showing for the Stratosphere Launch crew, uh, guys. Just to recap, and then we will move on because we've got a lot of stuff to catch up on. Um, thank you. Uh, it was it, it was beautiful. Uh, maybe make him Romney. Romney's more, um, that's not a bad idea. Although the thing about, the thing about um, making him uh, Comey is that He's he's an actual supposed to be like a warrior, you know, former guardian, former soldier kind of thing. Um, but uh, they'll all they'll all be there. And then the thing that really sells it, of course, is is the is the facial motion capture, uh, you know, with the, just the the two of us. Which uh, for those of you who have not seen it, I will download one last file, uh, and uh, and then I will uh, call this one a day. Hang on a second. Um, this is uh, basically just raw facial and, and body motion capture. Uh, but this is what all of the stuff that you just saw is there basically to get us uh, this stuff, get us to be able to put in the actual dialogue. So I showed this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, here is, uh, here it is one more time. Write such foolishness. Faucius. Faucius, you say. I'll not be commanded by that tardy-gated, parrot-plumed ninny-hammer. This little strange gesture you're about to see is where I take off the helmet because the helmet's on, and then finally we take off the helmet, reveal our faces, need to clean that data up. And, and mine beside it. Go tune thy loot, Faucius, thou... Mewling, onion-eyed, pigeon-egg. Go tune thy loot, Faucius, thou mewling, onion-eyed, pigeon-egg. I'll not be commanded by that tardy-gated, parrot-plumed ninny-hammer. I don't know. I think it's fun. Um, and uh, and somebody said I should have more, more scars, but I'm, I'm, a better, I'm a better soldier than that. Um, and people are saying things like the torch needs to be off to the side. Yes, it's it's just a is a super rough render when I try to take the helmet off. The hands go through my head, but it does give you an idea. Now, um, uh, you, you know we're getting close to the end of something. When I say this is the last thing I'll say for the sixth time, which is getting close. All of the stuff that the the, the facial motion capture and the recording you just saw was done off the iPhone. The um, the iPhone 10 and higher has the ability to read your face to unlock the phone. And it's actually pretty sophisticated. They, they, it can't be unlocked so that you could hold up a picture. Can't be a twin. It's, it's actually pretty sophisticated. Three different cameras they've got on the iPhone to unlock the phone on the on the tens and elevens and twelves. And um, once again, uh, bright guys out there said, "Hey, this this phone is generating enough 3D data for us to use to drive motion capture." So basically, I just put the iPhone on. Well. 
on this, you know, on the, on the palsy bracing, right? which I showed you before, and I'm not going to embarrass myself much more than this. You get the idea, right? So I'm looking into the iPhone. Ooh, there's the iPhone. Fantastic. Okay, and as I turn, it keeps just straight on my face, and then the, the suit records my neck motions and all the rest of that stuff. All that's great, but I saw something um, a week ago uh, for a different kind of thing called facewear. And facewear uses uh, just regular video, but facewear has, um, has the ability to tune the animation. So for example, what they what I saw in this facewear demo was they took just video because that's the nice thing about the facewear thing, it could just use any video as long as it's you know pretty much straight on. So, on the facewear thing is they they've had this video file, and and this woman is talking and all the software's tracking the lines on her face and her eyes and everything, and the guy stops at a frame and her mouth is kind of like this you know like, like that, but the um, but the metahuman that it's being mapped to is more like this. And so he just goes in there and can can tweak out the uh, and make the mouth match the video. And it once you do that, it applies that same deformation all the way through the animation, all the way through all the animations. So basically, I'm gonna I'm gonna try very hard to move to this because the the the, the talking animation you just saw, first parts of it weren't weren't great. The second part, the go to nilute was I thought real good, but that was because it was you got to be big, you know, you have to act out big. Um, I think I will be able to get to this uh, this week because now I got to start moving on to the facial motion capture stuff. But that ability to tune that, you know, like the eyes are, are, are not open enough. You just go in there and just turn them up from 100 percent to 110, 115. And they go all the way through um, the animation. And if I can get that to happen and I, I don't see any reason why I can't, then the then the dialogue and the facial motion capture will be much better and i already think it's pretty good um so then uh there we go and there we have it uh now as has been pointed out uh i did in fact say don't write anything yet i'll i'll post up today and i didn't put up a post today because i knew i was streaming it on um twitch and i just plain forgot so here's what we're going to do we're going to go to billwittle.com first and then we're going to go to Facebook, and um, and you have my uh, undivided attention uh, till we get these babies done. So let's have a look. Uh, I come to I, I just went to my web page and I see uh, deep thoughts with Kamala Harris. You know, by the way, um, one of the things that I like most about the Stratford Lounge is is the the passage of time, because as we sit here, time passes and. The passage of time affects the time that we pass, and right, and and the more time that passes, the more the passage of time becomes not only noticeable but important. She's she's not very smart. She uh, the reason she talks like she's talking to three year olds is because that's where that's the level she's working on. But as usual, I digress. So let's see, what we got at the questions uh, here. With that, she's a she's a peach, isn't she? She's a real winner. Um, yeah, uh, Aesop said when she was talking, it didn't seem to pass all that quickly. Uh, time slowed down for me. I, I, watching her, time slowed down so much that I could watch like vines growing on buildings. 
uh, moving, you know. So, all right, here we go. And it, come on, members. Four. Here we go. Stratus for lounge questions and more. 32422 Stratus for lounge questions. Of course, that would be yesterday, but here we are on the 25th, so let's do that. Uh, Rupert asked, Am I recording now? Yes, as it turns out, by some miracle, and I mean miracle, uh, it is in fact uh, recording. So, how about that? All right, here we go. I'm just reading them cold right out of the right out of the block. Ian Nolan, Bill, after seeing your most recent Stratus for lounge, just want to make sure you're aware of this link. Uh, and then it's uh, WTF happened in 1971.com. The Great Reset Agenda doesn't need a single moment of zeroing bank accounts. They can simply use high inflation and a few other market tools over a period of five to ten years. But on to my question, which is entirely unrelated. On Russia, curious about you and also Natasha's thoughts on both the death of Stalin as well as Citizen K, if you've seen either. If not, both are recommended. I've not seen Citizen K. I have seen Death of Stalin. Um, I love the death of Stalin. Natasha, not so much. Um, but I just loved it. I loved it because I, I I knew the cast of characters, you know. It, it's obviously um, uh, I mean the thing about the, the 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 death of Stalin that's so interesting is the stuff that they show in there essentially pretty much did happen, and it just didn't happen quite so close together. Uh, Jeffrey Tambor runs away with that as um, as um, Malenkov. Mal Malenkov, yeah, he was kind of the kind of the pudgy sort of bureaucrat who ended up being Stalin's official heir because everybody else kind of canceled each other out. But the real battle was between Khrushchev and Beria, Khrushchev and and, um, and Malenkov. So Khrushchev's played by S Steve Buscemi, who's brilliant. Malenkov's played by Jeffrey Tambor, who's also brilliant. And um, I don't remember the name of the guy who played Barry, but he was great. And the guy who played um, Zhukov was also great as an actor. He's terrific. In real life, he's a rotten guy. He's just a terrible, terrible guy. But Jeffrey Tambor, you know, there's a lot, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'll just, it's in the trailer. So that's how much of a um, spoiler alert this is. But, um, uh, Stalin's drunken son Vasily says, I, "I must, um, I must speak at my father's, uh, my father's uh, funeral." And Malenkov says, "No problem." And then uh, Beria and the rest of them say, uh, "Is this wise? Do we really want to do this?" And then he says, "What I, what I, what I meant to say was, can you speak at at your father's funeral?" No, problem. Brilliant. Um, just because the name came up, there was a show. I, I don't know what show it was. It, it might have been Meet Joe Black, but Jeffrey Tambor, I don't know if he was in Meet Joe Black. I, I, I think that's what the movie was. In any event, there's a scene where Jeffrey Tambor is kind of like a, you know, he's kind of like this, this, this second stringer, and he's, you know, 
he's just basically kind of the lap dog and, and just goes around and, and does all the dirty deeds and stuff and and he tries to maintain his dignity and and then again it's been a long time since i see this but he has this conversation with somebody and this other if you can tell me what movie it was i'd really appreciate it and this other guy comes in and cuts him to the quick and and there's an instant there it just it just went right through me it's an instant where Tamber can't show that he's upset or hurt or anything you know this is his crazy boss but there's a an instant when one of these insults really hits home and it's like his face deflates not just his expression it's so subtle and it's so great it, he's just you can just watch him just die inside there and um and and he's just uh, he's just brilliant just just brilliant isn't it yeah meet joe black is the one where brad pitt gets hit by two cars i think tamber was the guy who was the assistant to the bad guy in that part of the family i don't remember but i i i think it was i think it was meet joe black um no uh the, meet joe black was the one with brad pitt playing death with anthony hopkins and uh and it's actually a really good movie. I thought I thought I liked it very much. Anyway, um, Death of Stalin is is hilarious. Natasha wasn't so fond of it, but nevertheless, uh, I just might as well just go into this just super quick here. Um, things have been uh, tough. Son-in-law, perfect. That's what he is. Thank you, Lady Hawk. Things have been tough uh, for me. Not as tough as it is for people living in Marupal or anything. I mean to say that, but it's extraordinarily. Um, uh, hard on Natasha she's worried about her family they're in Sochi they're not they're not in any danger I just keep trying to you know reassure her of that but it's not helping when she talks to her mom thank God for WhatsApp she still gets to talk to her I'm surprised they haven't shut that down as a you know means of showing it to Putin you know we're gonna take away Putin's uh, ability to use WhatsApp um, but uh, her mother is is kind of a worrier, and um, and also is convinced that uh, you know the the Russian propaganda that Putin is putting out in into Russia, of course, blames the West and mostly America. This whole thing is a result of America. Everything that happens in Russia is the result of America. Everything that happens in China is the result of America. In fact, everything that happens around the world is is a result of America, unless it's good, in which case we just stole it or copied it but you really do have to know somebody from overseas really well to appreciate how america-centric the rest of the world is and and the kind of footprint we have um, but and this was a strange feeling uh, natasha's mom greatest mom's greatest concern was was that natasha would be hurt by americans that Americans would hurt her because she was Russian, and and America and Russia are in this big war, according to um, to the to what they're seeing on their own TV sets. Um, and I'm not surprised and very pleased to say, um, oh, locked up. People are saying we locked up. Let me have a look. Come on. Locked up. Hang on. I'm 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 working on it. I'm getting a good I'm getting uh, getting good um, 
Let's try refreshing the page here. Uh, come on, there it looks better. Uh, yeah, um, I, I'll just put it, type it in here for those people who are watching it live. Uh, uh, so anyway, as I was saying, um, N Natasha's uh, mom gets to hear all of the um, all of the Russia. Um, propaganda that Putin's putting out and um, and Natasha's mom expressed a real concern about Natasha's safety here in America because Natasha's mom was worried that um, that because she's Russian Americans would you know rough her up or something and um, and I was not surprised but nevertheless still very pleased and proud to say that she hasn't gotten a single ounce of that if the Russians had invaded Sherman Oaks might have been different um, but no in fact the only the only fallout that she's experienced personally for the time that this has been on almost a month now um, was uh, she went to a, a, a like a, a photography thing where a bunch of photographers were and and this one guy had a, a shoot set up and she was going to help him with it, this and he was going to help her with hers. And these three models from Ukraine um, didn't show up. They basically said, this happens here in Southern California. These three Ukrainian models said, we can't come and work with Russians. You know, you people are, are overrunning my country. You know, you're destroying my country. And I was actually kind of angry about that, to be honest with you. I just wanted to... You know, I just wanted to say the, the whole reason you come here is to leave that behind, you know, leave it behind. Uh, the whole idea of a, you know, of a, of a, of a kosher deli and a, and a, um, oh, what's the word? Um, oh, I'm not going to look at the comment section because I got to get this on my own. Uh, it is, um. I want to say falafel. It's uh, it's not. Um, hatal. Halal. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Halal. Uh, so anyway, the, you know, you got these two things that are right next to each other on um, on uh, streets in New York. And, and you, you know, you want to get pissed off at the guy because he, uh, you know, uh, stole your parking space. That's one thing. But, but you know, bringing all those old... Uh, uh, you know, hatreds and prejudices and all the rest of it. It's just not, not good. Anyway, so um, it's been, it's been really, uh, really hard. Uh, as I've said before, you know, she's very, um, she's very uh, ashamed as, as all the Russians that I know are. Um, and I know a bunch of them now. Uh, ashamed, embarrassed, angry. Um, she's very uh, calm individual and, and has gone a long way to have me see both sides of any story not just this story but last night I, she just never does this last night i just heard her watching something on her phone i just heard her just shout out you know f you and i thought somebody calling me uh it turns out that she was watching something on her phone and it turned out that um that it was putin um he is he, I, I, I still maintain 
I still maintain he's not long for this for this job. I really, really, really think that um, he's not going to be around for much longer. Um, he, I, I, as I said in the last uh, moving back to America, I don't know where his power base is if it's not in the military or in the oligarchs. Oligarchs and the kleptocracy not only not making money, but the money they made is gone, and the military is being humiliated. He's locked up his own. Um, intelligence guys when i heard he locked up his own intelligence guys and 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 humiliated them publicly i thought wow that's really smart vlad these are the only people who really have access to you you know this is if you if you you're such a big russian nationalist you, you should know that, that that's where the that's where the nine millimeter headache is going to come from is from the fsb uh, or the army and he's just you know he's just humiliating them and and paradoxically, I don't think this is a newsflash, while the whole world has become a lot more aware of the fact that there are crazy people out there and a lot more aware of the fact that Putin is a maniac, it has, um, it has actually made people much less afraid of the Russians, much less afraid. Um, uh, G.K. Masterson, who is a woman, asks a, uh, has a, a typically feminine comment here, and says, uh, brain tumor. I wouldn't be surprised. He's gained a lot of weight. Um, he, he doesn't look like what he used to look like. Um, but nevertheless, oh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, sudden onset lead-based brain tumor. Sorry, I get a little, little dense sometimes. Um, but whatever it is, there's, he's not the guy he was before, although I suspect that this was always in him, you know. Anyway, uh, as we record this, um, Kiev still stands and the Russian uh, armor is not moving and guys are jumping out of it and lots of guys are screaming and you know, a lot of Russian soldiers are, are, I, I have to say honestly I have not in my life and I study a lot of military history it's all I do really in, in my voluminous free time but I have never once heard not during the Romans or, or at any time in modern history I can't I can't think of an example where an invasion took place where the where the leader of the invasion lied to the soldiers about where they were going that's just it's inconceivable to me inconceivable to me um and you know the casualties are are not only horrific and embarrassing they're they're just genuinely tragic you know I think by this point we're probably real close to 10,000 Russian soldiers killed. Um, and uh, a week or two ago, when they when they passed 7,000, somewhere around there, 7,500, 8,000, something like that, uh, they had lost, they'd lost more killed in Ukraine in two weeks than the United States had lost in Iraq and Afghanistan in 20 years. So. I was never impressed by all of this. Oh, the Russians have this 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 ship killing missile, and it's going to it's going to it's the it's the answer to the American carrier battle group, and then and their felon, uh, you know, stealth plane is a, is an is an F twenty two killer. I'm way before the thing with um, Ukraine. I just didn't buy it. I was prepared to be wrong on this, but I just didn't buy it. You you know, it's like you've got a prop here. It's a good-looking prop, but we don't know how it works. You see those um, Russian 
uh, Chinese jets, the, the ones that are best uh, based on the SC-27s going off of their jump jet carrier. And you think, oh, they got an aircraft carrier. Well, yes, it's not computer graphics, but those aircraft flying off of their carrier are flying off of the carrier and they're not carrying any weapons. They're not carrying much of anything because they can't get off of the carrier with weapons. And so you have to ask yourself, what's the point of an aircraft carrier um, with aircraft that carry no weapons? And the answer is, we have an aircraft carrier just like, um, just like the Americans do. No, not quite just like. The American carrier actually is capable of delivering, you know, weapons and, you know, blowing things up. And I, and, and, you know, I don't think their new carrier, is, they've got a flat deck carrier now with a catapult system. And you, I did something on this months ago, maybe a year ago. And you see all the Chinese guys out there and they're all wearing the same exact outfits as our guys, as usual. They've got the, the same color coding. Everything's brand new. Everything is just absolutely brand new. And then it looks like, oh, wow, brand new. It's, I, I don't buy the brand new. It's like the reason that our carriers look older is because there are jets taking off and landing on those babies every day. And, um, and the most powerful air force in the world is the United States Air Force. And the second most powerful air force in the world is the United States Navy. So I don't know. Since I got on this topic, I might as well just get this out of my system. I'm sure there'll be some more later, but in any event, while we're here, um, when the Ukrainian thing happened, a lot of people, myself included, said, well, now is the time. If, China, if China's going to do Taiwan, now is the time. Biden is his normal, razor-sharp, uh, incisive self. Uh, and, of course, we have the, the intellect and the, and the um, gravitas of, of the vice president, in case anything happens to the president. So I thought, now would be a good time, while, while America's attention is completely stolen over here, and they already know that we didn't do anything. Biden comes out and says, well, the, the sanctions were never meant to deter um, Putin. Well, I'd have thought about something that might have. Anyway, this is what I'm thinking now. Um, there's, a, there's a, I think that, that it was probably pretty likely that they might have gone into um, Taiwan. But this is just my speculation. But I think that China basically took a look and by the second day, or the third day, certainly by the third day, China looked at this invasion and said, something's not right here. And and by the time we get into the fourth or fifth day, or, and then from every day beyond that, uh, China's looking at this and they're saying, these two American weapons, the, the Stinger and the, and the Javelin, plus the in-laws from British basic same thing as Javelin, have stopped the Russian army. They've stopped the Russian Air Force. And I, I think that what, what happened was that when the Chinese saw how an infantryman, I've been blowing this horn now for, for, for since the invasion started. I've been blowing it hard. I think that this Ukraine war has shown us essentially, I'm overstating the case just a little, and maybe I might be understating it for that matter, that we may be looking at the end of armor, meaning tanks and armored personnel carriers, and we may be looking at the end of, of uh, close support aircraft too. We, we just may. Our stuff is better than their stuff. The Ukrainians are using our stuff. But, you know, if a guy 
if a guy like me can, can, can hide behind a bush and on one shoulder I've got a javelin and the other shoulder I've got a, I've got a stinger, it's you know, not the kind of thing I want to go dancing with, but I could carry both of them at the same time. Um, I, this infantryman, one infantryman, can take out a tank. Ten infantrymen can take out ten tanks. And those same ten infantrymen can take out ten helicopters or ten attack aircrafts. Aircrafts. Did I just say aircrafts? This is one of my all-time big pet peeves, and it just slipped out of my mouth. The plural of aircraft is aircraft. Um, anyway, it, I think China looked at this and said, hold on now. All of our jets look like the Russian jets. Yeah, that's because they're bas you basically just did what you do. You reverse engineered their design. You've come up with some new hardware since then, but not impressed. And um, and they're looking at what these American weapons have done to the Russians in Ukraine. And I think that I think the Chinese are much less likely to invade Taiwan now than they were before because they they've always assumed that if if you're going to be successful invading Taiwan. The way you do it is you have these massive armored columns. You go in there with your with your big numbers of of, of uh, air aircrafts, and you, you you wipe the Taiwanese air force off the sky, and then you own the sky, and you got ground attack aircraft. But now they're probably thinking, I bet you there's a lot of of um, of Taiwanese hiding behind bushes who have Stinger missiles and um, and javelins because they're they got an economy there, you know. And um, I don't know. I really do think that this, that that that, that, that these man-portable weapons. I'm looking at the big, big picture now, as big as I can get it. Step it back as far as I can. It, it, it these weapons may have made the idea of any kind of an invasion that's short of a full-scale clash of civilizations, everything on the table thing, uh, untenable, that, that, that it's untenable. The, old, the, the entire history of the U.S. From the, from the end of World War II, from that day that it ended, was Soviet Union has these massive advantage of conventional forces. They've got way more men than we do. They've got way more tanks than we do. They're willing to take losses that we would never be willing to take. So therefore, we've got to have better stuff. So that means we have to have tanks and an attack aircraft to stop the Russian armor. That's been the, the dynamic from, the, from you know, August 10th of 1945. That's been the dynamic. And the only way to stop Russian armor is to build stop Russian tanks by building American tanks and by building, you know, you build uh, the uh, M1 Abrams tank, that's a better tank, and you build the A-10 attack aircraft. And all of this stuff has worked for 70 years now, something, or more. But now all of a sudden, you can stop Russian armor with a, with a guy. In fact, these weapons um, are so deadly that you can make the argument that an armored personnel carrier, which used to protect troops taking them into battle, got them in there a lot faster and gave them protection against small arms fire, at least. You, know. you make the argument now that a, an armored personnel carrier is just a convenient way to kill 20 people at the same time rather than shoot them individually. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, Helios says, you realize that the armor can kill a guy too, right? Yes, I can, Helios, but here's the thing, right? If you're if you're invading Ukraine and you're in a tank and you're let's say you're in the T90 you're in their best tank, you are much more easily you are much more easily detected 
than a guy with a javelin who can also get down, you know, into a trench. So essentially, I can I can dig a uh, just a, a foxhole and put some bushes in front of it, and you come screeching across down the road or across the field or whatever, and you're in this gigantic, expensive, loud, hot uh, tank, and um, you can fire on where that smoke trail came from, but uh, I don't think they have ordinance that is time to explode over uh, a foxhole. So, and get down. They're, it's not plunging fire. It's not mortar fire. What what can they do to you? Um, uh, Marisha Dark says better armor will follow eventually leading to energy shields. First of all, there's no evidence that an energy shield can even exist. The, the the idea of an energy field is is so much a part of science fiction that we just take it for granted that, oh, yeah, we'll have shields, we'll have force fields. There's never been a force field, uh, and it's hard to imagine one. And it's also hard to imagine uh, an energy field that is lighter. Well, I'm not going to speculate on how you generate one because there's no evidence that you can um, make a force field, nice as it would be. And... So the only thing you can do to protect tanks against javelins is you can is you can really really increase the armor on the upper surface. That's why the weapon's so effective. But the more more armor you put on a tank, the slower it gets, or the shorter its range is, or the less ammunition it can carry. Probably all three. And tank design is just like airplane design. You've got all of these things are constantly 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 in balance now. Scorch 191 says, or you could shoot down the missile. Now, that is an actual possibility. Um, again, Marisha's reaching for it as a you know, uh, new synthetic material. It's like, I'm here to tell you that the, the, that the U.S. military, U.S. Army, puts the, the, very, the very toughest thing that they can put on a moving vehicle is on the, is on the uh, the Abrams. In fact, the whole history of armor and, and, and clobum armor and, and, and reactive armor, the whole story of armor is really interesting, but but this is, you know, no. Now, shooting down the tanks, uh, shooting down the, the incoming missiles is, a, is an actual possibility. It's an actual possibility. It would have to be something like the Israeli, um, not the Iron Dome, that's an area defense weapon, they, but they do have something, I don't remember what it's called, I'll find out in about seven seconds here, that you can mount on a vehicle. We started using them in Iraq uh, towards the end there, and they will and they will basically fly off the vehicle and, and detonate in front of an incoming RPG round trophy. Thank you very much, Ms. Masterson. I appreciate that trophy. I think it's cool. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, how many of these can you can you fire? I, I don't know. I, I All I know is that I was not shocked by this because I was reading a book that I like so much called the Aliens Technical Manual. I think it was written in about 87, 88, 89. And it was just a coffee table book for science fiction nerds. I, I, somebody else picked one up and, and, and they lent it to me. Uh, and... Um, and it was about warfare at the time of the Aliens movie. And it was really, really, really well written and well thought out. In fact, it's the best well thought out science fiction I've ever read. And they were talking about this 
about how if everybody's carrying man portable missiles that can take out anything big that moves, then the only thing that can get anywhere is something small. Small. Um, so we'll see. Uh, you know, as if as somebody said, uh, uh, sorry. Omega, Omega, Omega and Yang eighty eight oh two. Sorry about that, uh, Megan. If I've got that wrong, we talk about chaff and, and countermeasures and stuff. I have seen. Uh, there's a, a a navy game called Cold Waters, which I like a lot, and um, and I've seen on that computer game. I've seen the the um, countermeasures that a ship will produce. It'll blow incredible flares and just huge amounts of chaff in the sky to take take out incoming cruise missiles. And I saw somebody playing an uh, Arleigh Burke class Aegis destroyer, and he basically just sank the entire you know entire Chinese fleet. And just missiles kept coming, and the and the the two phalanxes and the and the and the countermeasures just took them all out. I don't know how accurate that is, but I realized that I have never seen, I have never seen a destroyer, a U.S. destroyer deploying countermeasures as just as a video. I've seen it thousands of times coming off of airplane, but I've never seen a ship of any kind of ship, especially U.S. Navy ship. I have never seen a U.S. Navy ship ever showing countermeasures. And that's got to be because they're pretty damn impressive. Um, now we're, we're already putting lasers on, on, on Navy vessels. Uh, I'm still not impressed with the amount of time it takes to burn, but you know, it's a second or two or something. It just seems to me like you should just hit it and just go. But when you're, you know, if you're shooting at something and, and it's coming in at Mach 5, like these hypersonic missiles and you think, oh boy, Mach 5, and then you're shooting back at the speed of light, it's a good deal faster than Mach 5. Um, so I don't know, but this, this is, something has changed. Something has changed. And, uh, and, um, and Ukraine is the, is the evidence. Uh, I have my, my concerns. I'm just on a roll here. We will get to the rest of these questions to help me. But my concern in the, in terms of the, the Neville, the Navy was always torpedo defense because, um, shoot down incoming missiles and you usually have pretty decent range but not only do the torpedoes carry a almost certainly carry a bigger warhead right they don't have to fly the torpedo doesn't have to fly so it's got this enormous warhead and it detonates under the ship and just basically doesn't put a hole in it just blows this entire air bubble there and the spine of the ship just breaks so I've always been worried about torpedoes and I I've Ten years now said, uh, you know, why don't we have a? We should have our, our carrier should have torpedoes that, that swim out and, and kill the other torpedoes. That would be really cool. Turns out, that's exactly what we've got and what we've had for a while. Um, uh, Aesop says uh, Bob Lazar claims to have seen and felt a force field device while at Area 51. Well. If it's physics and thermodynamics against Bob Lazar, I guess I guess I'm going to have to go with Bob. Um, uh, but in any event, 
this is the next is the next step is is energy weapons energy weapons somebody pointed out to me years ago long time ago 10 years ago you know, super cavitating t torpedoes i love this stuff uh uh, Pat J. Reed says a supercapitating torpedoes are a threat. Yes, that's a torpedo that doesn't swim through the water. It's essentially a rocket-powered torpedo, and the torpedo never gets wet because it's basically creating an, uh, an air pocket as it goes through the water. Um, but, you know, again, the stuff looks good on paper. Making it actually work is, is an entirely different thing. Um, and the countermeasures, I don't know. It, it, it's also one of the biggest defenses of the Nimitz-class carriers is they're just damn big, right? I mean, if you if you are prepared for this, you get your water taken apart. I don't know how many I don't know how many torpedoes it would take to sink a a, a, a supercarrier. I do know that um, that they did sink one of them. The Navy sank one of them. Was it the United States USS United States? What was it? Uh, it wasn't the Ariskany because that was in plain sight. There was a U.S. It wasn't a supercarrier either. It was it was the, just before the Nimitz class, and and it was kind of top secret. And we went out there and tra USS America. Did I say United States? Thank you, Deef. USS America. USS America was sank by the United States Navy, and there's no footage of it that I've ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see because it was extremely classified stuff. But this was. This was a pre-Nimitz class destroyer, um, and uh, is there video of it? Uh, CV sixty-six. In any event, what I had heard about the sinking of this as a as a Navy test was that the thing that they thought it would take so much to bring it down, but it turned out it just took it just they just couldn't sink it. <sighs> so we'll see. CP Tome says USN figured that out and uses flat-tipped. 50 BMG to, to kill sea mines. 50 BMG. Well, I think what that would be. 50. Hmm. Yeah, no, no video. There's video out there, but there you go. Uh, Smarter Every Day is some awesome close-up footage of a torpedo sinking a ship. Yes, I've seen it too. Um, but those are older ships. They're much smaller. And they're aluminum in many cases. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. Anyway, let's get on with all this stuff because I love this kind of stuff. It's kind of groovy. Uh, here we go. Grayson Beckman. Grayson. Good evening, Grayson. Good evening, Mr. Chumley Warmer. Have you not? Have you seen, by the way, Grayson? Have you seen? Uh, uh, Harry Enfield is my favorite comedian. Harry Enfield and. Um, oh, what's his name? His partner, uh, Paul, um, I, I used to watch him every day. Harry and Paul. Hurrah for Harry and Paul. Harry Enfield. Paul Whitehouse. They're brilliant. Uh, brilliant. Uh, and, and, um, and and uh, Harry Enfield has a series of like 1949 instructional videos where they stand in front of uh, like a fireplace and they don't know how to use the cameras yet. You know, the, the, all the cuts are wrong and stuff. And um, 
and uh, and, he, and one of them, Henry Enfield, plays a guy named Grayson, and, and, and the guy who's doing the explaining is Mr. Chumbly Warner. And one of the things, just love, this is why I love this stuff so much, is um, one of them is on self-defense, and, and one of the things... Uh, one of the things that you can do to defend yourself against, like a, uh, you know, a, a criminal, is something something about, you know, open your umbrella or something so that he knows that you're upper class, and then he will immediately put the knife away and and, and start holding his cap and say, "Lovely weather we're having, Governor. You know, just go into that servile mode. It was just great." Um, anyway, uh, all of this because apparently uh, Grayson is not here, but it's such a cool name I couldn't resist it. If you haven't seen Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse. They are the funniest two guys I have ever seen. And Harry and Paul doing The Surgeons is my favorite. No, actually, we talked about this several months, almost a year ago. That's where we got the queer thing. They, they, they do these two guys who are in a British club with enormous ears, these two older, bigoted guys, and they open the newspaper and they say, you know, is he, is he a queer? Fabulous, incredibly great. Queer. Is he a queer? Of course he's a queer. He's on television, isn't he? Um, okay, here we go. Oh, wow, this is an interesting question. Chris Taylor, are conservatives a cargo cult? Cargo cults are very interesting. We see things like news reports of a huge leftist protest around a racist statue in the city immediately removing the statue overnight and think if we got out in the streets and protected, protested like the left, maybe we would get concessions too. Instead, the law enforcement agencies that protected the lefty protests staged by their bosses are ordered to come down on the conservative protesters like a ton of bricks. Absolutely right. Most conservatives think that normal policy, normal publicly visible political activities are why things are happening the way they are instead of understanding it was a decades-long process of marching through the institutions by control-obsessed leftists fellow travelers winning or co-opting key gatekeeping and political offices and then conspiring with others in the journalist style against the non-leftist rubes who play fair and wouldn't think of abusing their jobs or offices to, colon, make it easier to cheat, spy on and frame their competitors, sell out their organization's assets and slowly accumulated capital for their own gain and then wear the husk as a skin suit while demanding respect or even believe that other people would gleefully do those things, wouldn't, I guess, wouldn't be doing, he said would do those things, but even believe that other people would gleefully be doing those things when it's happening right in front of them. I, I'm assuming it's, it means couldn't believe that it's, people would do that because I have a hard time believing that even though it's right in front of them. How is it not like the Pacific Islander who thinks that the soldiers who cut an airstrip out of the jungle are the reason that the metal birds bring cargo to them and do not understand that there's a much vaster and more complex effort to make the planes and cargo and decide where to send them that is done out of sight of the primitive islanders. This is a great question. No wonder the left thinks we honest Tea Party types are stupid. The way that we look down in pity at the poor ignorant tribesmen building a fake airport and thinking it will bring cargo planes. Okay, so there's a lot of here, lot of stuff here that's great to unpack. Uh, I'm fascinated by cargo cults. Uh, I don't think they existed before World War II, but this is my understanding of, 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 of what a cargo cult is. So in the Pacific, you've got these islands, and these islanders have been living in, in you know, primitive conditions for thousands and thousands of years, and they seem to be perfectly happy. You know, they're wearing grass skirts, and they're out there surfing. Um, and then all of a sudden comes the Pacific War, 
and out goes Japan. And then a couple years later, here comes America. And as we get pushing closer and closer and closer to Japan, we're island hopping. So we're take Guadalcanal and then we'll skip a bunch. And then, we'll, then we'll take, you know, Peleliu and then we'll skip a bunch. And then we'll take Tarawa and then we'll take, you know, Saipan and Tinian and Iwo and Okinawa and jump our way up to Japan. So as the U.S. Navy is heading towards Japan and the Army Air Force too, for that matter, all of these supplies have to follow it. And these supplies go to these rear areas that may or may not have been battle scenes of various integrity. Some, some places we took much easier than others. But here's what a cargo cult is. So here are these uh, native islanders, lovely people, warm people, family people, seem like, seem like the greatest folks in the world from the videos I've seen of them. And now all of a sudden the greatest industrial power on the face of the planet is on their tiny, 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 tiny little island. And so they go from, from having essentially no manufactured goods to seeing the entire industrial might of the U.S. putting everything from beer cans to, you know, to machine guns, airplane parts, airplanes, all of this stuff is, is shows up on their island. And they don't know what to do with it. They just know it's, it's valuable and, and, and that, you know, the, the knives that come in, the bayonets are much better than any knives that they ever had or made. Okay, so... The Islanders go through a year or two of this while the Americans are there, and then doom, doom, two little bright flashes of freedom there, and then war's over, and America goes home. And these people that had nothing and then suddenly had all of this stuff now have nothing again. And this is where it gets to be really interesting. So what they do is, in order to bring the airplanes back, they go out into the jungle and cut a long strip of, uh, of, of trees, cut the trees down, and, and take all the stumps out and make it smooth. And then they build a hut that's up high on stilted legs with a, with a you know, thing around the side. And that is the, um, the control tower. And then they also build um, rough uh, you know, mock-ups of airplanes using just local materials and wood. You know, they got these things with a, a front and a back, and there's a thing on the front, and then wings, and then a tail. And so they're building these things because they're convinced that these were the signals that attracted the sky gods, namely the Americans. That the, that the uh, that all of this bounty came in because they could not see that a control tower was necessary to speak to the airplanes via radio. They just saw a big tall building, and then here comes all the all the goodies. So basically, what a cargo cult was is they once once the cargo left and the technological civilization that brought that stuff left, they were only able to connect the the, the absolute surface of what they saw. This thing's got things on the side and the thing that spins on the front and and so on. So they figured if we could just build the things that brought the airplanes here in the first place, like a runway and a control tower and other airplanes, then the stuff will come back. It's a profound um, uh, story for a number of reasons, but uh, not the least of which is, um, is that things are often much more complex than they seem on the outside. And that's the argument he's making here. Um, Chris, I can tell you something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, 
Where the natives, says Marisha Dark, with respect to technology 100 years from now, like energy shields? Well, okay, but you can tell me that 100 years from now we'll have faster than light travel, and that's impossible too. So um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see in 100 years. But when I say that they're not possible, it doesn't mean that they're not engineering possible. Some things are physically impossible according to laws of physics, and that seems to be one of them. Um, in any event, uh, Chris, here's, here's, here's something I've been feeling more and more strongly ever since the, uh, the voting event on, uh, in November of 2020, and, and especially with COVID and all the rest of it, and I'm feeling it more and more strongly every day. Your point is that cheaters have tremendous advantages, and you're right. They do. They have tremendous, tremendous advantages. Um, if you don't play by the rules, then you get to you get to cheat, and and in the short term that that gets you a lot of mileage. But the one thing that that I keep coming back to is is that honest people can be ripped off and continuously ripped off by dishonest people that's true but the dishonest people will never have what the honest people have they'll never have it the fact that they're cheating means that they will never have the advantages the long-term advantages that honest people have when they when they deal with each other this is why uh, i went to this dinner last night talked with a guy who um who, who wrote a, uh, sent me a, a, a couple pages and talked about he was growing up in Seattle and he had friends. He had a friend named Paul who was a guitar player, was a really kind of laid back guy and pretty cool. And, and then he had another guy named uh, Jeff who was a Star Trek fan and loved everything about space and, you know, and used to pick him up in a, in a Starfleet uniform and drive him around. And then there was this guy, Trey, who was like this math genius, you know, and constantly working on things. And then at the end of the story about his childhood and riding around on bicycles and find out, you find out that the, that the guitar playing Paul is Paul Allen. You find out that the Jeff is Jeff Bezos. And you find out that the Trey is um, William Gates III, friends of his. He grew up with all of them. Um, the, uh, this guy, is, is in that league. And last night I spent several hours talking with him on as high a level as I could get to uh, about this whole thing, about the technocracy and the dehumanization of people and the idea that we're just a series of mouse clicks, that we're, that we're just a, um, a ledger, we're just a, a series of decisions. I've been doing a lot of research for this uh, series of um, firewalls, which I know have not come out in either of this moving back to America's, but it's because I'm working on them. Um, I'm going to do a multiple part thing on this whole Great Reset thing, but the, tech, but the, the technocracy believes that, um, that people are essentially, um, they're, they're gears, they're parts. I've got video of a guy who says, um, and proud of this, says, we hack human beings. We have collected so much data now, this is one of the technocrats, we've collected so much data that we can not only know exactly what you're going to do, we can also manipulate you to do exactly what we want you to do. 
He said, free will is an illusion. It's never existed. We just didn't have the ability to correlate enough data to be able to make these kind of predictions with certainty. That's exactly what the Foundation Trilogy was about, by the way. The idea that you could predict the future um, uh, is uh, had to be with large, large numbers of people, and Harry Seldon and the whole, the whole thing. Okay, so there's that. And then I, I have another piece of video from this um, equally you know, young, late 20s uh, woman who's basically saying, um, no, it's, it's you know, uh, it's, it's going to be great. Uh, everybody will wear a device and that device will always know where you are and it'll know your health. And, and if it turns out your blood pressure is getting high, it'll, it'll prevent you. You won't be able to buy, uh, you know, high calorie foods or it's going to check your blood sugar. And if your blood sugar is looking a little weird, you're heading for diabetes and it won't allow you to purchase, um, you know, soft drinks. And, um, and, and I saw something in the paper uh, a couple days ago where it's like the new normal and it was USA Today. And here are like four boxes. And one of the boxes is there will soon be wearable devices that can detect COVID-19. And I thought, okay, what do they do when they detect? In other words, it's not an impossible thing to do. So, if everybody's wearing a device that can detect COVID-19, what happens when the device detects COVID-19? Does it sign, sound an alarm? Are people called? Do people come out of trucks with, you know, bio suits on and start hosing people down and then take them away for uh, decontamination for their own good? All of this, um, yeah, Stephen Eisen, Eisen, sorry, Eisen, Steve, it's not that the name is bad, it's just my eyes are gone. Um, says half of America uh, are demanding this. They are. And they're demanding this because they've been led to believe that this is not only good for them, but good for other people. So those people are, they're not lost, they're not gone, but they are, they have to be recovered, and some of them are unrecoverable, significant large portion of them, not recoverable. Um, anyway, uh, so this is what they believe. They believe that we're, that we are 100% predictable and that we want all this stuff. And by the way, this woman went on to say, um, these chips will, 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 will tell you who you can and cannot date, people who you're compatible with, or, 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 or maybe, you know, she's even talking about things like, if we need more doctors, we'll make sure that the smart people are, are only able to date other smart people, this, this kind of thing, right? And they're just chirping about this. They just, they just can't wait. And I was talking with this guy last night. He's a, he's a very, very, very advanced tech guy. Very, 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 very advanced tech guy. He did a lot of, of work at Microsoft in the day and, um, and is, a, is a genuine, out-of-the-box, genius, brilliant tech guy who is also, as it turns out, um, a, a human being with a soul. He's a, he's a devout Christian, and he also has enormous concerns about what things his buddy Trey uh, and Jeff are doing. Um, big concerns. So he's working on a, on, on, he, he just had, he had, it's so much that he explained uh, last night that really just opened my eyes. But th this goes to your question here, um, Chris. As succinctly as I can put it, Right now, it seems to me that what's going on in the world is that technocrats are trying to recover what they had lost for 100 or 200 years, and that is control over everybody. 
the history of the United States is this historical aberration, very, very short period aberration, where there were no aristocrats. The aristocracy didn't exist in this country for 200 years, 230 years, something like that. And unfortunately, we didn't get to eliminate that defective gene from the human gene, genome, and I'm not saying we should have tried, but nevertheless, you know, there it is like cancer and, you know, all the rest of this stuff. Uh, and so these technocrats are using this term uh, technocracy, which goes back to the 1930s as a movement. But the idea of technocracy is, is that is that the smart people will run everything because the smart people are better at doing a job. I talked about this just last week. I'm not going to go into too much too much now. But what they're doing is they are they are they're they're not technocrats, they're aristocrats. And and Gavin Newsom is the perfect example of this. Gavin Newsom lives not just so that he can go to the French laundry restaurant. A normal person would say, I'd like to make enough money so that I can go out for this lovely dinner when I want to. But Gavin Newsom lives so that he can go to the French Laundry restaurant while you cannot. All of you will have to stay inside and wear a mask because I say so. Well, do you have to wear a mask too? No, I don't. I get to do whatever I want to. That is aristocracy. That's what Nancy Pelosi is. That's what Hillary Clinton is. They're above the law. They like being above the law. And it's this fusion of government and business that I haven't seen in, in, in the course of my life where the, where the aristocrats in business and the aristocrats in government have finally figured out they should stop fighting each other and just take everything. And, and they are, I don't want to say, I'm not, I don't want to dehumanize them by calling them inhuman, but they're anti-human. They, they despise humanity. They despise regular people. And they are elitist and they're very, very smart. In fact, they're so smart that they're too stupid to see that all of us are smarter than one of us is. This is the, this is the, the aristocrat, um, the, I'm sorry, the elitist blind spot. They think because they're so smart that they're smarter than anybody. And, and they may be smarter than any one person, but they're not smarter than everybody. And this comes back to the wisdom of the crowds and the thing I've said many times, it just bears repeating about the, the ox thing, right? They turn of the last century, there's a, a seaside resort in England, and the grand prize for the raffle is an ox, which is an automobile, it's a tractor, and it's a refrigerator of food, all the rest of this stuff. Valuable item. You had to pay to, 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 to win, and, and the, the ox went to the person who came closest to guessing the weight of the ox. And somebody got a guess that was within, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 pounds, something like that. And then and then a mathematician happened to be there, and he, and he took the, I don't remember if it was the average or the median, of every single guess. And it turned out that, that everybody's guess averaged together came within two pounds of the actual weight of this thing. And here, I've mentioned this many times before. I don't know if I've spoken about this before. 1968, we lose USS Scorpion, nuclear submarine. Okay. Um, and it, its last reported position is it's off the Azores, and it's heading back home. And the whole purpose of a nuclear sub is to get lost in the ocean. So we don't know what the route is, and we don't know what, what speed he's doing or anything. They report from the Azores saying, we'll expect this back in three days or whatever, and they never show up. So now there's this gigantic hunt to find the scorpion because we want to know why this sub sank, because we don't want other subs to sink. And so 
we had to find this sub and we had to find it in the South Atlantic Ocean. Okay, so this is, an, we're talking about an area that's thousands and thousands and thousands of square miles, right? Where is this thing? We do have the ability, we have the technology to go down and look for it, but we can't just scan the entire ocean. We gotta, we gotta know where it is. If we know where it is, we can go down and see it. So the scorpion is lost in the South Atlantic and, and this one guy takes this idea about the common wisdom of the ox and basically he says, let's find out everybody's best guess, but let's not just ask subcommanders. We'll ask subcommanders their best guess, but we'll ask oceanographers and we'll ask um, meteorologists and we'll ask uh, guys that build the subs and we'll ask sailors that have been on the subs. We'll ask the commanders, we'll ask the crew. We're gonna get as many people who know anything about subs as possible, but we're gonna get as wide a spectrum as we can and we're gonna get everybody's guess. And all of these guesses are different, but when you average them together, do you know how close they got to the to the USS Scorpion that was lost in the South Atlantic? Do you want to know what the what the point that they predicted the submarine was versus where the submarine actually was? Do you know how close the guess was? Without any sonar, just this is what the average guess of these people was. They got to within 220 yards in the South Atlantic. 220 yards was the was the average guess of all of these people and 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 the, and they've got the entire south atlantic as their as their range of, of possibilities 220 yards that's miraculous it's not a coincidence either right and and so these elitists cannot come anywhere close to this but they cannot also accept the fact that that everybody together is smarter than they are. They can't deal with it because of the narcissism and because of their mental, their, their mental illness, right? I've said before, well, that's probably the third time I said this tonight that I've said it before, but there's a huge difference between a millionaire and a billionaire. I've known many millionaires. All of the millionaires I've known have been terrific guys, work hard. None of them went into business to be a millionaire. They all just had something they were good at, wanted to do, and did very well, and they were rewarded for it. But a billionaire is a different kind of guy. And I've known, I've known one of them fairly well, and a couple of them I've met and had you know, dinner with and stuff. They're completely different. And, um, and so... In order to become a billionaire, you have to be missing something. Um, and uh, I'm just seeing what Edward Smith read. Miraculous, you asked a wide range of people, many of whom had to know their shit about where a submarine might be. Yes, but, Edward, here's the thing. None of their guesses, none of their guesses were correct. It's not like one guy got within 220 yards. This is the entire point. Every one of these people who knew what, they, you couldn't just ask somebody off the street because they didn't even know what a submarine is in some cases, right? So, but my point is that nobody got the right answer. None of them got the right answer. They all got the right answer together, but none of them got the right answer by themselves. So, um, anyway, these billionaires, I think, are, um, are, are, are defective. And, and all you have to do is look at, um, at uh, Mark Zuckerberg testifying in front of Congress. The, the, 
he's he's a reptile and i don't mean like a space reptile i mean he 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 is really quite deranged and if you ever saw the social network which is 10 years old now or older i know i know somebody was in that movie in army hammer and he was great in that movie um so it, 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 when you see the social network about how Facebook was created, you find out that Zuckerberg had one friend in the world who stuck by him, and then he just plain screwed him over. He didn't, it just didn't even enter his mind to, to not screw him over. He had a loophole, and he took it. Um, uh, so all of these people are, 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 you have to have a certain kind of, so he, there's a question here that says, what about Trump? Trump has it too, and so did Churchill. And, and I'm trying to think about people who get to, I, I just don't see how you become president of the United States or a billionaire without being able to really discard a lot of baggage, emotional baggage. Even the people I admire the most, like Reagan, was an extraordinarily jocular guy and, and very fun, but most everybody who knew him, certainly his family, said that he, he, he wasn't really there emotionally. The president was there, but, but Reagan, you know, that. Um, so I, I think all of these people look at us like the Google thing on the, on the, uh, the selfish ledger. They, and, and like this guy who says, there's no such thing as free will. It's all just, you're, you're programmed and we can read the programming now and, and we can predict what you'll do and we'll, and we'll tell you what to do it. Yes, Reagan was extremely introverted. Yes, um, Churchill was a was a megalomaniac. Churchill was exactly the same way. He just happened to be on the side of good, you know. But all of these people are are there's Hitler had no human connections to anything. Stalin had was unlike Hitler, who was essentially alone the whole time. Stalin had friends and family with him his entire life. He just murdered them all. So you've got these people that are trying to to run us, and they have the advantage of not having any essentially human connection to slow them down. If you have to kill a few million people to accomplish something, then those are just numbers of units that are out in flyover country. When we were talking last night with this guy, I don't remember if he said it or I said it or we both said it, but basically, how were the pyramids built? Well, the pyramids were built by slaves who who um, went to these um, quarries and the, the ones with uh, with some kind of basic skill would cut out these large blocks and, and then huge numbers of slaves just had no skills whatsoever, drag this thing to the thing and then the guys would finish it, put it in place and they drag another rock and it takes hundreds of years and and probably millions and millions of, of, of man years to, to get this done, right? And so, what is it? It's the Great Pyramid of, of Cheops, yes? The Great Pyramid of, of Cheops. Well, Cheops didn't build that pyramid. The pyramid was built by hundreds of thousands of people, and maybe more, who were just as real as Cheops was. They had families, they had, they had love affairs, they yelled and screamed, they were married. They were real people, and they built that pyramid. And they didn't want to, and it's not named after them, but they're the ones that built it. And 
And this is kind of where I'm going with this. These kind of people look at this and say, I want a pyramid. Well, it's going to take, it's going to take a, a century or, or whatever, 80 years or whatever. And, uh, and it's going to take 300,000 slaves and, and we'll probably end up killing 100,000 of them from disease and overwork. Make it so. That's what it's like to not have any humanity. You are the pharaoh and you're going through the camp and you're looking at the base foundation because you're not going to live to see the completion of the thing. You're looking at the foundation of the pyramid and you think, great. And somebody and you say, how many people died today? Uh, 160. Whip them harder. You got endless lines of people. They're units. But they're not units, they're people. Those people that built the pyramid were people. They're just as much people as the pharaoh is. And this is what these swine can't understand. So, um, all of this, Chris, is it goes to, yes, they cheat. They don't have, they, they, look, folks, we, we owe, we owe $30,000 billion dollars. Where do you think that money is? It's gone. It's gone. It's been spent by people that spent the money that you invested in, in government bonds and in your in, 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 and all of the on the private side, all of the speculation and derivatives and all of the money that you invested in, you know, for your retirement fund, all of the product the, the product of the entire nation, the most productive, hardworking nation in the history of the world. 300 million is a pretty decent size to all of that stuff was paid into this machine and this small group of people took it. It's not just businessmen, it's not just government, it's both of them took it, it's gone. And they don't feel a moment's remorse over this. When, when here in California, when they pass some other new law that drive businesses out, you, you, you want to say, don't they realize they're killing the state? So yes, they realize they're killing the state. They just don't care. They don't care. It's not their problem. They're going to get their retirement, they think. And, and, and so they don't care. So when you're fighting people that don't care about anything other than themselves, they have tremendous advantages. They get to cheat and they work all the time on it. And, and it's easier to tax a business than it is to run a business and it's easier to steal money than it is to go and make it with all that said with all that said they have not got this this fundamental human connection that gives us the strength because we're the people that produce the stuff that they stole um i'm not saying that i'm not i'm not i'm not going at this like a socialist or anything i'm not going at it like like Look, Bill, uh, Steve Jobs is worth a lot more money than the guy who manufactures the iPhone because you can replace the guy who manufactures the iPhone, but you can't replace the guy who had the vision for the iPhone. So you, so you get the idea, right? So where I'm going with this, Chris, is that, is that all of the short-term advantages of cheaters, they have. But the long-term advantages, they don't have. They don't have it. They can't access it, they don't understand it, and they fear it. All of that. When they see people doing the right thing instead of the smart thing, they go into vapor lock. They start going to little badge, start flashing, they start going into Norman coordinate kind of mode. When they see people do the right thing instead of the smart thing, in other words, you could have just stolen this money, gotten away with it. Yes, but you didn't. No. Why? Because it was the wrong thing to do. <laughs> 
Okay. So, yes, they have short-term advantages. We have long-term advantages, and, and we'll take it from that. Um, interestingly enough, in the same way that the wisdom of, of the crowd, and this is why I'm an anti-elitist, I'd be an anti-elitist even if they were right. I'd be, I'd be an anti-elitist even if they were right, but they're not right. They think that the smart people should run things, and it's scientifically, mathematically proven that the most accurate results don't come from a small group of smart people, they come from a large group of regular people. So, um, so not only are they immoral, they're, they're wrong as well. That's why we fight them. But they'll never have this. They'll, and, and, and you see this in, in armies as well. Um, you, you see this, like I think probably the clearest example, if you go back to like, uh, you know, three, 400 BC, somewhere in there, and you're dealing with the city-states, you've got farmers who are making up the armies of, of Athens and Thebes. Sparta's got professional soldiers. That's all they do. They have slaves to run the stuff and then they go out and train. And, and yes, the Spartans were kind of badass for a while, but the Spartans were r routinely beaten and in the end, uh, roundly and consistently beaten by farmers. And all of the Greeks beat the living daylights out of the Persians. So you got a Persian warrior here who's, from the time he's born, has been trained to be a warrior and he's got, and he's on a horse and he's got these incredible skills with a sword and stuff. And he goes up against a, a, a Greek farmer who, who has in his house his panoply, he's got his armor there in the helmet over the over the hearse, he's got his greaves and all the rest of the stuff. And once or twice a year, or every three or four years, he has to go get the stuff, put it on, and go out and fight these professional warriors, and they kick their ass. Because they have not got the individual skill that the warrior has, but they have a bond. And that means that they have a phalanx. And that means that you protect the guy on your left with your shield, and the guy to your right will protect you with his shield, and you have to trust each other for this to work. Because if you don't, then everybody starts trying to protect yourself, and then everybody gets killed. And this is a good example of what our advantages are. Our advantages are the advantages of trust and, and humanity and concern. They, they cause us short-term disadvantages, but long-term, um, we, we clean their clocks. And I've listened to six days now or five days of this testimony on this grand jury thing about the whole pandemic and and stuff. And I've listened to 25 hours of evidence, I guess, something like that. Somewhere close to that. No, it's a little less than 20 anyway, easily. And they're from all around the world. And they're doctors and they're lawyers and they're engineers. They're economists, they're, they're virologists, they're, they're regular MDs, they're accountants, undertakers, all of us, extremely practical people, very practical people. And when they closed this thing and they said, do you think we can beat this oligarchy, these aristocrats? Every one of them said, yes, I think we can. In fact, I'm sure we can. And every one of them suddenly got extraordinarily um, spiritual, almost said mystical, but that's not the word, spiritual. All of these hard-nosed people who are on the side of regular folks, that's what the whole thing was about, was who's running this thing and, 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 and how do we fight them? 
because they're committing these horrific crimes. And every one of these hard-nosed people from all around the world, all these different walks of life and different educational backgrounds, different countries, every single one of them, when you came to the answer, yes, of course, we'll beat them. We'll beat them because of our, of our shared humanity. And, and, and virtually every one of them said, we'll beat them because if we start to fight back, then God will come to our aid. That's what these bankers and, and virologists and geneticists and, and, and economists said. They all said the same thing. And I thought, that's a mystical experience going on here. But I could watch them, and even I could see it on Zoom. I could watch each one of them listen to, listen, had listened to the other people's testimonies. They all knew they were on the, not only on the same side, but on the right side. And, and they are convinced, and I am convinced, that these people will fail. And the guy who I spoke to last night, who's the smartest guy I have ever met, at least in terms of... Um, uh, <laughs> John Pershing says 27 hours because uh, the longest TSL ever. It's because I was streaming before we recorded folks for, for a day saying, hey, not tonight, till, not, not till tomorrow. But this guy last night thinks they're going to fail too. And he thinks they're going to fail for the same reason I think they're going to fail. They are so arrogant that they don't realize their blind spots. Um, they, um, for instance, he was saying, he was at an, an event or something and some geneticist was saying, we've sequenced the uh, complete human genome now. We've sequenced thousands and thousands of, of genomes. And he said, we are no longer at the point where we uh, are trying to understand how genetics works. We're now at the point where we are controlling genetics. He says, we now can create life. We, we, we simply create it. And he went backstage afterwards and said to this guy, what you, you're, you're completely nuts. You don't create life. What do you mean you create life? He says, well, we have a blue algae and we alter a couple genes and now it's a green algae. That's not creating the life. He said, one, I, I, again, this is, these numbers are, the relationships are wrong, but the overall thrust of it is right. He says, you know, one protein consists of 160,000 amino acids. These things fold up in milliseconds. They just, they, they, they do all of this stuff, and you know what results when you do these things, but you don't know how it works. You don't know how these proteins fold. You, you, you know enough about it so that you can alter it and predict it, but you don't understand it. He, um, I'm reluctant to talk about this a little bit because I've been taken out of context before and I'm going to, and I'm just going to tell you anyway, because I'm, I'm not going to let these people slow me down. This guy is a computer scientist and a lot of people have talked about the fact that these, um, capture things, you know, where, are you a robot? Click on the squares that have uh, a bicycle in it. Well, it's been known for a while that what you're basically doing is you're not just showing that you're a robot. They could solve that very quickly. You're training AI to know what a bicycle is. CAPTCHA, sorry, whatever I said it was. You're training their AI to just millions of times a day. People are telling the computers, this is a bicycle, this is a bicycle. So the computer knows what the arrangement of pixels are for a thing called a bicycle from all different kind of angles. Now, I didn't say this, I'm not claiming this, this is what he told me. He said that when AI 
recently, he said that AI was able to identify umbrellas, bicycles, all this stuff from virtually any angle. And this is, this is basically what he told me verbatim. He would, so they would say to AI, here's a picture, show me more things like this. So, sure enough, the computer kept doing it until they showed the picture of a black person and then the AI returned nothing but gorillas and chimpanzees. This is what he told me. And they didn't know why. They couldn't figure out why. They still don't know why. So what they did was they simply wrote that part of the code out. Now, what I'm saying here is, is that the AI had, had a, a blind spot that they didn't understand. And no one understands. This is not, this is what the machines returned, right? And they'd gotten virtually everything else right. So why is it? Nobody knows why. And so rather than finding out why, they simply stopped doing that. They excised it. They, they, they cut it out of the, of, the, of the software and out of the program. It's just, this thing is returning not only an, an error, but it's returning an awful error. And, and since we don't know what's causing this error, we can't fix it. So we're going to stop asking this machine to do that one thing. And he said, that's all you need to know about these guys. Not that their system returns something that morally repugnant, but that nobody knows why. They don't know why. Nobody knows why, right? And, and, and nobody can figure out why. It doesn't make any sense, but it happens consistently. So these are the people that are talking about uploading memories and things like that, you know? It's, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. He says a, a computer can, and, and I use the example of the, the, the cow and the scorpion. Artificial intelligence can triangulate on things and, 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 and get very, very close, but they don't understand anything. Computers do not understand anything, and artificial intelligence doesn't understand anything. It's not capable of understanding it. It is capable of identifying things. It's capable of making predictions. It's very capable at finding patterns and that kind of thing. But it doesn't understand anything. Not in the way that we do. And, and, it, and it never will. Um, Scorch says it's, uh, AI does not have heuristics. That's largely true. It brute forces it. Because it's got so much memory and so much processing speed, it's essentially able to, to run a virtually infinite series of possibilities and come to the, the, the most likely correct answer, but that's not really understanding. And, and Scorch uh, 191 used the term heuristics. You probably know more about it than I do. But my understanding of heuristic learning is when you, when you learn something as a human, you don't have to learn it again. If you touch a red hot stove, and you burn your hand, you will never touch anything red hot again. You'll never touch anything that's glowing again, not just grab it, you, you'll, you'll treat it with respect. You don't have to burn yourself again and again and again to learn this lesson. Once you 
learn that the first time, if it's something powerful, like I just burn the living hell out of myself, then that becomes a heuristic. It is a building block and you don't have to learn it again. And you can apply that individual limited piece of, of experience that you had when you burned your fingers on your own stove when you were four. And you can take that experience and project it out into, my God, here's a giant machine that's rolling out of a, a steel you know, beam that's, you know, 300 feet long or whatever the case may be. It's red hot too. I'd better not touch that either. And, and so these guys are trying to, are trying to have the world be run by these machines that they admire so much. And that they, and that, see, see these, these, I'm, I know I'm on a roll and this is why the show is what it is. Um, AI for these computer guys. These computer guys, I'm not saying they don't have families, but I'm saying they don't have human connection. So AI, the machines and the software and the programming and the problem, that's the better word, the problem, that's their children. That's the only thing they have an emotional, genuine emotional passion for. It's not the people. The people are just data for their machine. They are, they are putting, um, they are putting all of their emotional energy that would normally go into human relationships into trying to, to move this ball down the field. And they're very good at it, but they're so into it that they don't recognize how limited they are. This is why, this is why, and I've, I've seen this verbatim and not just being flip, it is, it is kind of a catchy expression of mine, but it's essentially, I've seen it. This is why if you've got a climatologist or, or a university that has a climate model and it predicts a certain temperature and they go out and test the atmosphere and the atmosphere is different, these guys are convinced that the atmosphere is wrong, that there's something wrong with the atmosphere. That's what, that's the, the blind spot they, they get themselves into. The guy who I used to work for at PGTV is a billionaire and, and, and he was a, a very nice guy and he got me my start. And I'm very grateful. I don't for a second want to sound like I'm ungrateful. He, he paid my rent and, and, and all my food and stuff for years. And I certainly wouldn't be here without him. I'm extremely grateful for, for that. But he, he got his money through data crunching. He's one of those kind of guys. And I, if I've told the story, I haven't told it for a while. At least I don't think so. So after the afterburners and TV started to take off and started to do some, some real business, they were really starting to get out there and, and starting to succeed. And this was good because trying to get viewers to PJTV. So I got a call from the billionaire who, who owned this company at about 1.30 in the morning. Absolute true story. I'm just sitting on my couch reading and about to go to bed. And the phone rings and I look at the caller ID. I said, well, I should probably take this call because this is the, not the guy who runs the studio. This is the guy who owns the studio. And I say, hey, how's it going? What can I do for you? And he says, do you have a few minutes to talk? Absolutely. And he said, well, your, your videos are really starting to do big numbers out there. And I said, yeah, I'm very, very grateful for that. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm very happy about it, very pleased about it. I'm proud of them. He says, I've noticed that when you do your afterburners, that you make an initial statement and then you spend between 90 and 115 seconds making your first point 
and then you then you make your second point which is about that long then you add a joke and then you and then you do he basically broke down these these afterburners into these elements and how they were structured and he said why why did you choose why would you choose three topics instead of four? And why did you choose to talk about them for a minute 20 instead of, you know, two minutes? And I listened to this amazed. And I said, uh, Mr. Billionaire, um, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I don't have, I don't have, I honestly, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. If you're telling me that you've broken down the work I've done and found that these patterns are there, he says, yeah, they're all, they're all there. Absolutely. I said, I, I am completely unaware of the process. I don't take notes. I have no plans. I sit down and write what I want to write, and, and I don't even feel like I wrote it. It just comes out. It's flow. He couldn't understand that. And I think the reason he asked me that question was because he wanted to know how to make all of these videos successful. This is the failure of, of, the, of the big brains, is because they're so smart, especially in narrow areas, because they're so smart, and because they have managed to understand one very complex but relatively, in fact, incredibly small little thing, they think that they can apply that to the rest of, of life, and they can't. And a classic example of this, uh, this story I've told many times, but it's a great story. Here's a great example of how complex life is, how much more complex things are than the people that make decisions realize yes he did want to do it without me he wanted to make he, he wanted to he, he wanted he wanted to um you know to uh what's the word i'm looking for he wanted to industrialize the process he wanted a production line he was, you know so you just plug these things in and here comes here comes the, the the glory here's a great story uh familiar one to the regular strata loungers before i worked for that company uh and did the afterburners and all the rest of the stuff i worked as an editor in Hollywood for 15 years and the last five or six of those years was a five-year gig which was unheard of problem is I was never a five-year gig it was always a three-month gig and we just kept getting renewed so I was the editor on Sunday morning shootout which is Peter Bart and Peter Goober Peter Peter Bart was the editor of Variety Peter Goober is a gigantically powerful and successful mega producer and I like both of those guys very much I wouldn't want them to date a, sis a sister of mine, but they're, 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 I, I just like them. So Peter Goober and his partner, John Peters, were the two guys who brokered the sale. I think it was of Columbia, and I think it was to Sony. Without question, they were the two Americans who brokered the sale of an American movie studio to a gigantic Japanese megacorporation. And for the sake of it, I'm going to go with Columbia and Sony because I'm 90% sure that's what it was. So Goober is trying to close this deal for which he got $750 million. And so did Peters, apparently, um, which is a decent paycheck. Is sitting in a boardroom in Tokyo. And he is looking at the board of directors and the CEO of Sony. And these guys are all financial guys, business guys, and most of them are engineers, right? These are the kind of people that manufacture televisions and radios and all the rest of the stuff. They are a manufacturing company. 
and they're trying to buy an entertainment company. And so Goober is trying to explain to them the business model. And he says, here's how it works. We'll do 10 movies a year, let's say. That's called a slate. Our slate for this year consists of these 10 movies. We'll make those 10 movies and they'll go out into the market. And of those 10 movies, three of them will be hits. Four of them will do okay, break even roughly, right? And three of them will be flops. That's generally how it goes. And we end up making a profit because the hits cover the cost of the flops and, and then some. And this Japanese CEO leaned forward to him and said, with dead seriousness, he said, I, I, I don't understand. Why don't you just make the hits? And that's what you need to know. It's not a failure of engineers. It's a failure of people to understand how complex things are. A movie screenplay is extraordinarily complex and it's dealing with anything that's half, anything that's decent is dealing with enormous number of emotional threads in its, in its, in its. And then from this little seed, then you bring in all of these other artists and they all collaborate. And, and then you end up with a finished motion picture. And maybe you got a, got a guy did a great score. Maybe you got a guy who did a bad score. Maybe the sound guy ruined the thing because the sound is garbage. Maybe the, the director of photography put everything flatter. Maybe he made everything look like a postcard. Nobody knows. But that's the point is nobody knows. Nobody knows because it is too complex to figure out. It is essentially completely chaotic. Nobody knows what movies are gonna hit. And the reason you see so many reboots and so many sequels and, and so many um, franchise things like the MC, the Marvel Comics universe, well, Iron Man was successful, people love that. Why don't we make a movie about Ant-Man? It's gotta work. No, it doesn't. It's, it's infinitely more complex than this, infinitely more complex than this. They just don't understand it. it, it they, they think they do, and that's the problem. If they just admitted that they didn't understand it, they'd be like the rest of us. Uh, was the name? I want to say William Gibson. I don't think that name is right. Um, screenwriter in L.A. He wrote a book about, about how, how the movie business works, and, and the great quote from that is, ain't nobody knows nothing. He's right. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I think that's a, a beautiful thing. I really do. But nobody knows. And I have done videos that I thought were absolutely guaranteed to just really just go crazy wild. And they don't. And other ones that I just think this is the work I have to do this week and I put them out. And the next thing you know, they're, they're, they're just, they're just, nobody knows. Nobody knows. But they think they do. And that's the dangerous part. They think they do. And they're using our common good as a fig leaf to cover the fact that they want to tell us what to do, that they're aristocrats and, they, and that's what they live for. That's how they're programmed. And uh, the map is not the territory. If I showed you a wall map of Texas, a big one, every little street and the counties and all the rest of it and towns, you would say that's Texas. It's not Texas. If I showed you a, a, a photograph of Texas taken from space that was the size of a football field, you'd see individual houses or however big it had to be to, and show you individual houses. That's not Texas either. That's the map. It's not the territory. Every single pebble on every one of those red lines representing the roads, not pebble, every single tiny piece of gravel has 
billions if not trillions of bacteria on it and there are billions or trillions of these pebbles and out in the middle of the bushes and that's what Texas is. But Texas is, I don't know, I, I can't even estimate how many orders of complexity greater it is than we are capable of understanding, but I'm willing to bet you it's, it's, it's certainly not less than 10 orders of magnitude. And if you told me it was a thousand or a million, I wouldn't be surprised, right? So a map is useful. A map allows us to go around Texas and I'm here and I wanna go there and a map allows us to go from this real place in the territory to that real place in the territory because we can use the map. That's what the map is for. But the map is not the territory. And when, and when you spend your entire life making the world's most complex map of Texas, you think you've got Texas, but you don't. You've got a shadow of 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 many other shadows. That's what you got. But they have this emotional attachment to it. So uh, to answer your question, uh, Chris, which took about an hour, I guess. Uh, yes, they cheat, but they don't. But their lack of humanity will be, won't be their undoing. It's the presence of our humanity that will defeat these anti-human swine. Here we go, Marusha Dark. Uh, hey, Bill. Hey, Marusha. Uh, not sure if I've ever mentioned this before, but I'm a pagan. Yes, conservative witches do exist. That's why I love this show, and that's why I love this audience. Well, I get that you and Zoe have your beliefs, and while I'll be the first to admit that many self-identified witches do believe a lot of BS, nevertheless, it still sings to always hear Christian conservatives dunking on anyone who uses that label. When it comes up, I try not to take it personally by reminding myself that I often poke holes in the Abrahamic faiths as well. So turn around is turn about is fair play, I guess. I think this is why so many non-Christians tend to flock to the left because they're basically being pushed there through alienation and sometimes even active persecution. It's if not currently, then at least historically. I get that America and Western values were largely built by Judeo-Christians. I don't really have a problem with that. I view it in the sense that all religions contain the same core truth and all point to a handful of universal elements with the rest simply being details and ritual. Those same morals and values that built this country would be among them. Anyways, here is something that might interest you after your recent video with Zoe. While I don't buy into a literal Genesis narrative, if I were to try and steelman the case for a six-day creation, it would be as follows. Part of my worldview includes Clark's third law, which says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So God or some other powerful entity might have used planet building technology like what you see in the Wrath of Khan or the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a device process or system that would necessarily be consistent with the actual laws of physics, whether we understand them or not, that can expedite the process through manipulating gravity, magnetism, genetics, and so forth. Such technology would be science while appearing like magic to primitive people or even to us. I could think of other equally valid hypotheses such as simulation theory, but figured you'd appreciate that one since I know you're a huge Star Trek fan. Much love as always, Maru, thank you. Um, and, 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 and a great question. When I was talking with this guy last night, he's not just a computer uh, genius in terms of how computers work and how, and how processing work. He, he's a guy who thinks about thinking, and he has a tremendous background in biology, and especially molecular biology. And 
when I was talking about the arrogance that I used to have when I was a complete materialist and it was all, you know, what, what, else, what else do you need to know? You got a glass beaker, you put in hydrogen, helium, methane, and ammonia, it's what was here in the proto-atmosphere of the Earth, pass an electric spark through it like a lightning bolt, down come these little rains of, of brown amino acids, the basic building blocks of life. Any other questions? Simple, nothing to it. Well, this guy was talking about things like proteins folding and how fast they fold and 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 the complexity, the, the, the simple mind-numbing complexity of it. And now we're back to the Texas and the, the map is not the territory thing. We can model what a protein looks like and we can predict what happens if we put proteins together in a certain way and what's going to come out of the box, but we don't understand how it works. We just understand that it does and we have, and I'm very proud of this. I'm, I'm not down on this. I think humans are amazing animals. I think what we're able to accomplish with this limited horsepower of ours is miraculous what we can do. It's astonishing. We go back to, we go back to a millionth of a second after the big lesson that, I mean, a millionth of a millionth of a second, Planck time, back to what the universe looked like in the, the, the billionth of a second after the Big Bang. We can do that just by all of us working together and using our brains, but we can't go to what happened before that because that is out of bounds. And that's where the horsepower problem comes in, right? We cannot conceive of what happened before the Big Bang and our language shows us how limited we are by saying before. There is no before. This is, this is, this is my monkey breakthrough. My, my monkey mind breakthrough has been able to detect to some degree how much assuming we do because of the limitations of our brain. I will never be able to understand infinity or eternity and neither did Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was brilliant and was able to produce astonishing results sitting at a desk. And Albert Einstein understands infinity and, and eternity mathematically. He understands how to manipulate these concepts, all of this stuff. He can tell you what's not on the other side of the universe, but he can't describe it. He can't because he doesn't have the horsepower. He doesn't. Period. Nobody knows what came before the Big Bang because that is a pointless question. You see, this is this is this is the little monkey brain thing that I figured out is not like we cannot figure out what's before the Big Bang because it's off limits. The whole idea of before and after is a result of the limitation of our of our horsepower. We see things as before and after. It seems obvious to us, but that's just that's just our moving through the fourth dimension at a rate of one second per second. We're three-dimensional creatures traveling through the fourth dimension. We can't see it. And we can't see the little worm of us that is the four-dimensional representation of us as seen through five dimensions. Can't see that either. But we, we mathematically can tell that this is what's happening. And, and, we, and we know we're right because that's tremendous predictive power. So, as I like to say, because it was a real wake-up call for me, this is a three-dimensional object, right? It's actually not. It's a four-dimensional object. It has four dimensions. It's got, it's got um, width. It's got length. It's got uh, depth, width, length, and, and it's got duration. It's got duration. It's here. Well, of course it's here. No, not of course it's here. It's here now in my hand. It wasn't in my hand earlier. It has duration. And that is a dimension. And the, the duration aspect of this four-dimensional object 
was created when the other three dimensions were. When they made this coffee cup, this astonishing, awesome coffee cup, they created a four-dimensional object. They created a, a cup that has three dimensions of space, and that's when the duration started, the same as when the height started and the width and the depth. And when this thing shatters, you could say that the coffee cup will lose its fourth dimensional aspect, but there will be shards and all of you get the idea, right? That it has, it has duration. But duration is just another axis. It, it's just another, it's just another axis. What that means is, is there is no before and after. When we say what happened before the Big Bang, that's an indication that we don't understand the question. There was nothing before the Big Bang. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean that there were no clocks? There was no time? No, no, no. There's no before and after. It's always been here. It always will be here. Always? Well, somebody had to create it. No, no. This is where you, this is where you are running up against your limitations. You can't do it. The, the universe is expanding, right? And inside the universe is space-time. Not just, not just space, but the, the structure of things and time inside this bubble. And it's expanding. And our little brains want to say, expanding into what? What is it expanding into? In other words, if I go to the edge of the universe, and they had some great engravings of this in the Middle Ages, and I get to the very edge of the universe, at the, at the wave of where the universe is expanding from the Big Bang, you run everything backwards, get right to the edge of the bubble, and there's some imaginary fast spacecraft. I get to the edge of the bubble, right? Yes. What's on the other side? Nothing. What do you mean nothing? You mean like a vacuum? No, a vacuum is something. There's nothing on the other side. You mean like white, like a pink? There, there, there is nothing. It doesn't exist. There is no existence. Now, I can understand that in, a, in an intellectual way, but I can't connect to that. How, and, and you can't either. You cannot connect to the fact that, there's, that there is nothing on the other side of this thing. Oh, there must be other bubbles. No, no, it's not accessible to us. We don't have the horsepower. Now, what this guy was saying is, he was saying that when we, that when we program in, uh, when we program with computers, we're using binary language. And again, I'm just gonna have to remember the numbers that came to me last night. And, uh, and I'll, I'll probably get this wrong, but the thrust of it will be correct. So you have you have a you have base two. It's binary is base two. It's on or off, on off on off on 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 off off on off on 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 off. Yeah, you get the idea, right? Base two. Two squared is four. Two to the third is eight and two to the fourth is 16. We, he's saying computers are programming in, in, in a world that has 16 operator, operators. And I don't really understand what operators are. It's, it is kind of if then, you know, true false kind of thing, all the possibilities, 16 of them, yes? He says, when you get into, when you get into um, protein structure, it is impossible to understand how these proteins do what they do and especially as quickly as they do it. We can kind of understand the fundamentals of, of what mechanically might be going on, but we don't understand the process. No, we, we, we just can't. Hundreds of millions of, 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 of things happen virtually instantaneously. 
he said, he said that we are just able to tell that it is that this might be something that's happening not at two to the fourth, which is where we are, but two to the sixty-fourth. In other words, I got that wrong. Basically, he said binary is computers run on binary on or off base two. But if you if you do math in base 64 math, if you do base 64 math, which means that every number up until 64 is a number. And then once you get to 65, it's 1, 64, and then zeros. And then you keep going all the way up to 64 again. Now you got two 64s. When you do base 64 mathematics, which is not possible, you can calculate it, but you can't, can't calculate You can't do that, right? When you do mathematics and base 64, then all of a sudden protein folding becomes clear. He's convinced that the reason that it happens is because it was designed to do what it does by somebody who's thinking in, in with, with base 64 mathematics. Simple. If, you, if you're working base 64 mathematics, it's a, it's, you, you would design these things this way so that they can do this that fast and produce these little results down here in our little four-dimensional world. It's a powerful argument because, again, we come back to people saying, well, we've got all this figured out. No, you don't. You can describe it, but you don't understand it. Um, anyway, uh, so to go to, to go to your question here, um, I, I agree. I have heard, and this is where I start walking out in, in between the two camps and, and, and find myself being you know, shot at for both sides. The arguments that I've heard creationists use against evolution don't understand evolution. The arguments that I've heard materialists who understand evolution apply towards religion don't understand religion. And when I say religion, I mean belief in God, deism, and you know, theism and all the rest of it. The people that believe in creationism say that in, that evolution is impossible, and here's why, but the reasons they give are not accurate descriptions of what that process really is. And the exact same thing goes the other way. The people who try to discredit um, uh, belief in God or the existence of God are doing it in a way that doesn't understand what the problem is. And now we're at the heart of the issue. This is what we talked about that episode with Zoe. They're separate domains, and they don't, they don't communicate with each other, but they both point in the same direction. Marisha says, if God exists, then God made evolution. Yes. But again, there is a, there is a causality built into that. First God, then evolution, then the results of evolution my understanding of how things works, and I'm just saying this is what the reflection on the cave and back of the cave that was behind the cave that Plato had, is that it's always been there. There is no before and after. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a thing that's built. When was it built? It wasn't ever built. It's always been there. It always will be. Well, and we're just a little, my life is just a little four-dimensional pathway through that. Exactly. A four-dimensional little string through this, this endlessly large 
uh, 11-dimensional object that's been there forever and has always been there and will always be there. Well, then where's my free will? Your free will was built into the structure of this thing. You mean it, it saw me... This is when we have to, this is when we have to say, you know, I've tried, I've tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to get this chimp to fly this instrument approach. And I just, he's just not getting it. You know, I've shown him videos. I've, I've taken him into simulators. I've, I've made, I have just gone again to the basics, basics, basics. And, and I put him in the sim and we've been doing this for, for every day for, for seven years now. And this chimp just cannot fly this instrument approach. What the hell is the matter with him or with me? Am I just a bad teacher? No. No, it's not your fault and it's not the chimp's fault. It is incapable of doing it. And we are incapable of understanding the things that we know. And this is the essence of why these people are dangerous because they think that prediction means understanding, but it doesn't. It doesn't. That's a map Prediction is a map. Understanding is the territory. So, um, back to, to the question here. You mentioned that uh, a lot of people go to atheism because they feel like they're chased out of Christianity. There's, there's some truth to that. I, I've said before with Zoe, I think, or maybe somewhere else, that for an entire generation, the, the, the biggest obstacle to Christianity has been televangelists who are not only absurd, but crooks. I mean, they're actual thieves. And, and when you find out about Jimmy Swigert and you find out about, you know, um, Jim Baker and all the rest of it, it's a scam. And, and they knew it was a scam and some of the people who helped create the illusion of it being real knew it was a scam. But most people in those audiences, and most of the, in fact, all of the people that sent him money didn't think it was a scam at all. So that superficiality parading as Christianity and having people believe it is silly. And, and it did a lot of damage, a lot of damage, I think. And the constant appeals for money. It's just, it's just venal, you know? It's just venal. And, and it, 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 dis, it, it destroys the majesty of what, what God is, or at least what he could be. He's not an ATM. And when you try to make it that, you damage the brand. That's what they did. They damaged the brand, really. Now, the thing again here, because I just, I just try to catch myself doing this. I do it all the time. And, I, and the more I catch myself, the more I'm able to aware of how limited my perception is. Uh, you say, any part, my, part of my worldview includes Clark's third law, which says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That's what Clark said, and he's right. So God or some other powerful entity might have used planet-building technology like what you'd see in Wrath of Khan or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This is an interesting point because now you have to get into the mechanism of creation, right? And this is, to me, the, the, this, 
this is where I got sold. This is this is this is what closed the deal for me for for belief in God or or something. Yeah, God. Why hedge my bet? We are able to determine using our monkey brains that the process of observing something changes the outcome. We don't touch it. We don't poke it. We don't tweak it. We just look at it. And when we look at it, it does something different than it does if we're not looking. That's quantum. And that is full up against the horsepower limitations. But nevertheless, that's the truth of it, right? It's not just that we can't tell where the electron is or how fast it's moving. We can do one or the other, but not both. That alone is a paradox because it's, a, it's not a paradox. If you're thinking base 64 math, but it's a paradox for us, the double slit, slit experiment, exactly. If you, if, you, if you pass light through two slits and you observe it, I forget which way it goes. One way when it's not observed, it light behaves like a particle. When it is observed, it behaves like a wave or the other way around, maybe I got it backwards. But, but the bottom line is, is that again and again and again, the act of observing something changes that outcome. Now, we're looking through the thinnest of little tiny, tiny, thin, super thin, hair wide cocktail straws at the, at the, you know, at the molecular level. And we see that by observing this, we have had a different result than what we expected. The observation has changed the physical world. That's true. It doesn't, it, if it, if it weren't true, I wouldn't be standing here or sitting here as the case may be, but it is, it is true. Observing it changes it. And that tells me that if a, if, if a, a fairly advanced chimp like myself can observe something and change it, change the structure of the universe. I don't need a machine. I am changing the structure of the universe by looking at something. I'm compressing probability uh, fronts and all the rest of the stuff that, again, is the, 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 the map of what's going on. Nobody knows. We're exchanging particles. They're not particles. That's just all we can come up with. The fact that we can come up with something that works and is predictive is amazing to me. But here we go. Human look at something, and a human changes the way the world is constructed by looking at it, by thinking about it. So. If this uh, little piece of observational technology is capable of making those little tiny minute changes, and they may not be so minute, by the way, then what would a, what would a consciousness 300,000 orders of magnitude greater than mine, well, there's no such thing, obviously, my, no, nothing greater than my consciousness, but what would, what would that be able to do to the structure of the universe? You would be able to think about it, and it would appear. That's what the, the, the data from the experiments tells us. That if, if I can look at something and observe something and change the physical structure of, of it in some tiny, tiny little way, but measurable way, provable, repeatable, experimental way, then that means that a more sophisticated observer should be able to do more sophisticated uh, uh, outcomes and then the question just becomes, how sophisticated does it have to be in order for it to create the whole picture? 
not not just the whole universe what how how much observational neural networking how much how much horsepower does it take to think a television set into existence how much brain power does it take because that's what i think is actually happening it's not i don't i don't think it's and i, I personally find this beautiful i don't think it's that 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 God is a, is a guy in a cloud with a beard who points at something and a lightning bolt comes out of his fingers and poof, TV set appears. I think that there is a, that are, there is a consciousness and a TV set is obviously a, a silly example, but simply says, oh yes, one of those. And, 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 and it manifests itself because he has changed the structure of the universe based on the thinking and the observations that he's done and he's created this thing. So, <laughs> Scorch191 says, thinking of this is not helpful for accounting. No, it's not helpful for accounting. It's not helpful for a lot of things. Um, uh, all of this stuff is real. If it wasn't real, I wouldn't be pushing it. Um, but I do find it to be a pretty remarkable coincidence, really, uh, that... The, the, the most advanced scientific, astrophysical, cosmological explanation that we can come up with for why the thing is here is let there be light. That is too much of a coincidence for me to buy. Essentially, science and, and religion have, have converged through different pathways, through their different dimensions, through their different domains, and they've come to the same conclusion, which is telling me it's true. Materially, we have evidence of expanding universe. Okay, we can measure the redshift of stars. Yes, we know we know what where the lines of the spectrum should be because we know that hydrogen absorbs this line, and we know that, that you know oxygen absorbs that line, and we're looking at the star and we're seeing these lines, but they're moved. Well, the only way they're moved is because if they're moved one way, then the thing's coming towards us. It's, it's Doppler shift. If it's moving the other way, it's going the other way. So there's a red shift. All the lines that we look out in space, we see all these stars and all these gases, and we see all the, the chemicals in the spectrum, and they're all showing red. They're all being shifted in the same direction. They're moving away from us. Okay. So we're able to take that, run that backwards in our little monkey brains. Extraordinarily impressive. And just the fact that we could think of it bigger than think of it smaller, that's probably something a chimp could get to but to be able to take it down to a to plank time to a, a nanosecond or two before i mean after that and to know that things like you know that the universe became stopped becoming opaque what nine hours or something after the big bang whatever the number is and at, and at two weeks after the big bang uh, you know uh, bosons were able to all, all this stuff that's that's astonishing but but being able to describe it doesn't mean we know how it happened or why and ultimately for me and i think um i'll probably do it on this not not because i'm tired and i certainly didn't get through all the questions again because i just think this is the way to end this particular show in my advancing old age i am beginning to realize that it is enormously useful to understand the how. How? How do these things happen? But the real question is not how. The real question is why. Why? 
And the idea that there doesn't need to be a why is something that seems self-evident. But when you step a couple steps further back and look at and look at the impossibility of the thing, then you begin to realize, no, the, oh, there's only one question, and that's why. Why? It's possible, it's theoretically possible, that the why is because of utterly random situations. But I don't have to explain to all of you, because you all know how this works, right? I don't have to explain to you that the laws of physics that allow life to exist are not uh, they're baked into the universe we live in, but if the if the strong nuclear force were weaker, or, or if gravity was stronger, or magnetism was weaker, whatever, then everything fall apart. Now, this gets to the anthropic principle, where the answer to that is yes, it might have been a hundred billion trillion to one chance, but the fact that we are talking about it means that that chance occurred, and and that's where we run into our little limited horsepower trying to explain away something that's not explainable. If you did a lottery, right, you took, uh, took eight and a half billion people in the world and, 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 and everybody had a lottery ticket and there was only one winner. Everybody had a unique number. Every single person had a unique number on the planet and then randomly we're going to draw one number and we're going to kill everybody else there is going to be one person who is going to have had that, who is going to have won that one in eight billion chance. And, and that person will be able to say, well, the chance of me being here is one in eight billion. Yes, it is. But you were the guy who hit the one in eight billion. That's how the anthropic principle works. That's how, that's how the argument goes backwards to the materialists. But ultimately, I'll, I'll, ultimately, this is this is what goes. To, you know, one of the things I mentioned to this guy last night. I had a great conversation. Just sat there and just soaked all this stuff up. Everybody talks about artificial intelligence. No one's talking about, uh, a, you know, AW. A There's no conversations about AW at all. No one's talking about artificial wisdom. Nobody's talking about wisdom machines. Nobody's trying to build a, a, a program or a, or hardware that 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 outputs wisdom. It out, they, they, they do very well. We do very well out finding things that will output information based on the information we put in. But the, not only is there not a wisdom machine or artificial wisdom, they're not even, the, the idea of even looking for that is beyond their ability, just beyond their mental horizon, right? There is no work into research into wisdom. Intelligence is handy, but wisdom is everything. This is what I've learned over coming up on 63 years. I've learned that the things that I learned that were that were based on intelligence were interesting and important. But intelligence is 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 gathering information and wisdom is determining which information is important. And, and, you know, really, when, you, when, when people ask me, why are you so suspicious of these tech guys? My answer is because they're not, they're trying to build an artificial intelligence machine. They're not trying to build an artificial wisdom machine. 
they're not only not trying, the idea never occurred to them. So if, if the idea of wisdom never occurred to them, and wisdom means in this particular case, not can we do this, but should we do this? Then you guys are all running around on a level that is way beneath most common people. Can we do this? I have no idea how. You know, not smart enough to figure out how you are, Bill Gates and all the rest of you. You are smart enough to figure out how. None of you are smart enough to figure out why, because you're not even smart enough to ask the question in the first place. And regular people do ask questions like that. There you go. All right. Um... Eric Blake says an AI with soul would be proof of the existence of God, a miracle. Yes, but this guy who helped design the internet, who, who, who helped write TCP IP and HTTP, basically helped invent this stuff. He says that machines absolutely are incapable of, of understanding. They are only capable of prediction and they're only capable of that because they are able to follow instructions very, very, very fast. And, um, and, and, and I was enormously relieved to hear that uh, because, you know, these, these, guys, these guys think they're going to upload their consciousness into silicon. They really believe it. How, how, does, that, how does that work? I've never won I've heard a lot of people talking about this kind of transhumanist idea of like, oh, I'll just take my brain and, and I'll take all these memories and we'll just encode them and there'll be a modem that'll allow my biology to talk to the silicon and then I'll just take my entire consciousness and I'll upload it to a computer. And then I'll be a and then I'll be immortal. There's the there's there's what's driving the whole thing. You see? That's what that's what's actually driving it. Then I don't have to die. Then I don't have to die. Right? If I can figure out a way take this and store it computer then i don't have to die i'll be here forever okay um, but for example since silicon functions hundreds of thousands if not millions of times faster than our biology does even if you were able to pull this off and there's no evidence that you can but even if you were what would your consciousness do if it were based in silicon your thoughts would be hundreds of thousands of times faster because you're not limited by the chemical reactions of the biology. If you were able to pull this off, and again, there's, you, you don't even understand the problem, but if you were, you would be thinking a million times faster than you are now, which means that time as you know it would stop. It would stop. The second that that transfer took place would be the instant that you opened your eyes or opened your sensors or connected to the sensors and from that instant forward time would have stopped and the reason it would have stopped is because you are now thinking millions of times faster than you used to back in that wetware now that you're now that you're in the silicon world now your brain cycles are millions of times faster and that means that everything you perceive slows down by millions of times. You, 
you you have there's a science fiction story about this it was great i don't remember what it was called it's a very simple science fiction story but it was about about technology that allowed you to travel to the stars and it was instantaneous the ship passed through this membrane and and when it transits the membrane it's on here it's on earth and when it comes out on the other side of the membrane it's at Alpha Centauri, and it takes the amount of time that it takes for this thing to go through. But in the science fiction story, everybody had to be unconscious while that happened, because there's a moment when that membrane goes through your brain, and, and basically that's eternity. And, and some guy is stow, stowing away or something like this, and so he gets on the ship, and they get to this membrane, and he thinks he's going to be out of it on the other side, and two or three seconds, and in the end, he spends essentially a hundred million years. And he can't get out. He can't kill himself. He can't move. His consciousness now is experiencing a hundred million years of being alone talking to yourself. And when he comes out on the other side, he's not He's not the same guy that went in, and he's not smarter either because he hasn't learned anything. He can't teach anything. He can't get any information. He's stuck in his little 100 million years of eternity and nobody to talk to but himself. Can't sleep. Can't sleep. These people who are in horrible situations of people in concentration camps, and, and most of them didn't survive. Uh, <laughs> Uh, for those of you who are watching uh, on YouTube, recorded, uh, we have such great people here. And Helio seventeen seventy six says nine hundred ninety nine billion nine hundred ninety nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine bottles of beer on the wall nine hundred ninety nine billion nine hundred ninety nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine bottles of beer. If one of those bottles should happen to fall, yeah, but you get to do that ninety nine nine hundred ninety nine billion song you get to sing that a billion times too. So, it, 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 what, they're, what they're chasing is immortality. That's what they're chasing. And, uh, and, and I don't think it's possible to catch it, but if, if, if it is, then I don't think they're. I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to be what they think it is. I know what they think it's going to be. But it's not going to be that. Meanwhile, here I sit, talking to you about this stuff, and then I will, in a few moments, climb into a piece of elastic material that form fits to my body and I'll put some sensors on my joints and these sensors measure very delicate measures accelerations and rotations all of this information will take my normal extraordinarily complex biological movements convert them into digits spin them into a computer spit them back at 60 frames a second I captured 100 frames a second maybe it could capture 200 frames a second but you never that's you the granularity of biological motion is infinite 
And so then this will be stored on a hard drive and then uh, I will upload it to, uh, to the cloud and then I'll go home and then I'll download it and I'll get it into a different system and then apply a different set of mathematical rules to that data. And the next thing you know, there I will be inside a machine looking like me, sounding like me, talking like me with all of my mannerisms, but it's not me and, and it's a long way from, from me. Uh, it's a long way. All right, well, I think, uh, while I did not get to all the questions, uh, how many did I miss? I missed a bunch. I feel bad. All right. Uh, I really am, I'm probably going to have to do this shit twice a week, honestly. Um, anyway, uh, this was the, this was where the show needed to end, and I just, can't tell you why I knew that. I just did. Um, that'll do it for this edition of the Stratosphere Lounge. is made possible by the members at BillWhittle.com. Many of them who are here watching the show live as it happens. Many of you watching it um, on YouTube or elsewhere. BillWhittle.com. Uh, those of you that are paying for it, thank you, uh, as always. I sometimes I have to drag myself in here but I never drag myself out and always um, always have fun in here and uh, and it was my beautiful wife that pointed it out to me uh, so anyway um, I'm continuing to work on the on these other projects and on on the firewalls and stuff like that and I'm running as fast as my little legs will take me and um, and thanks again for supporting the uh, the journey and uh, we'll see you next time